a Christian debunks creationism by Paul Martin, read by the author, copyright 2019, Paul Martin's fine films and audio books. Introduction, the history of evolution. All biblical references, unless otherwise stated, are from the World English Bible, 2000, which has no copyright restrictions. In 2002, I completed my theology degree, a Master of Arts in Ministry, through the Melbourne College of Divinity. In 2019, I completed my Bachelor of Science from Monash University in Melbourne, Clayton Campus, where I was specialising in zoology and environmental science. This book looks at creation science. Is it scientific and is it biblical? It's written to inform Christians who are frequently exposed to the propaganda of creationism and to provide them with answers to the onslaught of creationists. It's also to clarify much of the ignorance of science that many Christians have. The vast majority of scientists are evolutionists. It's about 98.5%. About 15 scientists in every 1,000 are creationists. And in almost every single case, their only motive for being a creationist is religious beliefs, not the scientific evidence. And they are also responsible for spreading much misinformation, not only about evolution, but also about climate change, which most creationists deny. And many people that look at this debate get the impression that there's some big, great debate raging between creationists and evolutionists. In reality, it's not really the case. There are occasional public debates between a creationist and an evolutionist. Most scientific people see it as a circus and a joke. There was a 1988 debate between Dwayne Gish, the creationist, and Ian Plymer, in which Ian Plymer utterly destroyed a lot of the pseudo-scientific views of Gish. There was also, in the 2000s, a debate between John Mackay and John Polkinghorne. John Mackay is an uneducated charlatan creationist who has no scientific qualifications or theological degrees. John Polkinghorne, on the other hand, is a reverend and a canon. He's a canon theologian and he has a PhD in physics, quantum field theory and a doctorate in particle physics. And he's authored over 30 books And in their debate, 
John Mackay pointed out that Polkinghorne in a 1990 article said that the universe was 15 billion years old. Whereas now in the 2000s he was saying that it was just over 13 billion years old. Now this is an example of the stupidity that is in many creationists. They quote out-of-date science and use that to try and discredit our present science. The thing is, in 1990, we did not have as much technology as today. And thanks to advanced technology and our better understanding of astronomy, we're able to more accurately pinpoint the age of the universe. So you can imagine that when I enrolled in my science degree, I expected, in those five years that I studied it, I expected to hear a lot about the debate between creationism and evolution. I couldn't have been more wrong and have had a more bigger misconception. In the five years that I studied it, Creationism was mentioned about five times. The first, and, and I'll tell you about each incident when it was used. The first time was in a geology class and they asked us to type into Google age of the earth and they were giving that, us that as an example of how not to do research. And the lecturer, she said, well, there's a lot of misinformation on the web, like from creationists. And she goes, I even had someone who cited answers in Genesis in one of their essays. Then I went on a geology tour on a Saturday to study rocks. And there was a rock formation And I said to one of the PhD demonstrators, how did that form? And he said, we're not certain at the moment. And before the PhD student could say anything more, one of my friends piped up and said, I know, the space gods created it. Well, you should have seen the look on the face of incredulity of the PhD scientist. And he said to him, the space gods, you sound like a creationist. And then there was a lecturer who mentioned creationism in one sentence, just as an example of people in the public who are sceptical of evolution. And then there was another case where a lecturer asked about crabs. Why do crabs, male crabs, walk around with one claw holding up? Which, if I remember correctly, it had something to do with mating signals. But one girl put up her hand and said, maybe it's because they're pointing upwards to God the Creator. And at that point, the lecturer chuckled and said, science does not tell us whether or not the earth was created by God. Creationism, he said, is not science, it's faith. And then the 
One other time was when I mentioned it to a lecturer. I pointed out to a lecturer during a class that there were 6,000 species of drosophila, that is, flies. And 2,800 of them are found exclusively in Hawaii. He thanked me for giving that information. And at the end of the lecture, he said to me, thank you for your insights. Could you tell me where you got the information from? And I said, it's from a PhD scientist in biology in Hawaii. And he said, okay. He looked intrigued. He said, what was the book called? I said it was called Coming to Peace with Science. And he sort of looked baffled at such a strange title. And I said to him, it's about the controversy between evolution and creation. Well, you should have just seen the look on his face. He looked at me dumbfounded like I was insane just for having read about that and he just gawked at me with his jaw dropped and fortunately I was saved by a group of students who needed his attention and had questions to ask him but I went away thinking to myself in the world of science there is no debate over creationism it's considered pseudoscience it's considered laughable and it has no scientific respectability and I was in the Presbyterian church for most of my life and eventually I moved out of it and eventually became a Catholic and part of it was due to the fact that the Catholic church accepted science and accepted evolution because Throughout my degree, I found overwhelming solid evidence for evolution. And I thought if this is true, it should be reflected in God's people who have the truth. And yet I saw all around Christians who were denying it. And I shared with the pastor in the Presbyterian Church my beliefs in theistic evolution So the following Sunday, he preached about theistic evolution and he said that it was of Satan and Christians who believe in theistic evolution are compromising with Satan. And on that note, I could no longer go to his church because I thought if he thinks so badly of me, I'd be a hypocrite and a fool to sit under his preaching and teaching. And so there is an incredible amount of misinformation out there, though. I talk to creationists, Christians, whether they're fundamentalists, evangelicals or Catholics, and they seem to have some crazy misconception that evolution is completely and utterly disproven and it's been debunked and it has no credibility. And a creationist said that, recently to me and I said wow really I said in that case could you quote to me some mainstream science magazines 
could you show me in magazines like New Scientist, Scientific American, National Geographic and Nature articles from those magazines which show that the majority of scientists are creationists? And could you show me peer-reviewed scientific journals which think that the universe is 6,000 years old? And he responded by saying that it was asinine to ask that. So without further ado, my friends, I'm going to now have a look at the history of evolution. About 610 to 546 BC, there was an ancient Greek called Anaximander, and he believed that humans had evolved from fish. Then there was Empedocles, an ancient Greek who lived from around 490 to 430 BC, and he believed in evolution by natural selection, in which monsters that were not well adapted, like minotaurs, went extinct. And so eventually we evolved into the normal-looking human race of today. From 428 to, 4, to 348 BC, there was Plato, and then there was Aristotle, who lived from 384 to 322 BC. And these two men argued against evolution, and they were very influential in getting many of the ancient people to believe that animal species were fixed and couldn't change. But in, even in the Bible we find evolution hinted at in the Book of Wisdom. And the Book of Wisdom was considered scripture by the early church. The Book of Wisdom, I'm going to read the last uh, few, few verses. Wisdom chapter 19, verses 18 to 22 says... For the elements changed places with one another. As on a harp, the notes vary the nature of the rhythm, while each note remains the same. This may be clearly inferred from the sight of what took place. For land animals were transformed into water creatures, and creatures that swim moved over to the land. Fire, even in water, retained its normal power, and water forgot its fire-quenching nature. Flames, on the contrary, failed to consume. The flesh of perishable creatures that walked among them, nor did they melt the crystalline, quick-melting kind of heavenly food. For in everything, O Lord, you have exalted and glorified your people, and you have not neglected to help them at all times and in all places. And there, from the Book of Wisdom, it talks about how sea creatures became land-dwelling and land-dwelling animals became sea-dwelling. And we see that in evolution. Then in 369 to 286 BC, we have Shuang Shu, a Chinese Taoist philosopher 
who believed that biology allowed species to change into other species, and Taoism believes that the world and creatures are in a constant state of transformation. 99 to 55 BC, we have Lucretius, a Roman poet who lived in the time of Julius Caesar, and he had a poem called Diriram Natura, and he described the world as developing by natural means. Then there was Oregon, a Christian scholar and an early church father. He lived from about 184 to 253 AD. And he described the book of Genesis as an allegory in his book on the first principles, chapter 4, verse 16. And another man who is probably one of the most respected church fathers and theologians in church history is Saint Augustine. And Augustine lived from 354 to 430 AD. And in his book on the literal meaning of Genesis, he said that new creatures may have come about through the decomposition of earlier life forms. He thought that insects might have evolved from carrion, and he believed life forms are not perfect, but created in a state of potentiality. And he believed that forms of life had been transformed slowly over time. And then in the from 776 to 869 AD, a few centuries later, there was Al-Jahiz who lived. He was an Arab poet and a scholar in Basra, where Iraq or Babylon is. And he wrote a book called Kitab al-Hayawan, Hayawan. In chapter 4, verse 68, he noted how lice are black on the hair of young men, but lighter coloured on grey-haired or white-haired men. In other words, adapting or evolving to their environment. And he talked about natural selection. And he said that racial characteristics like skin colour had evolved from one's environment rather than being made that way by Allah. And then there was Ibn Khaldun from 1332 to 1406. He was a Tunisian Arab and he wrote a book called Mukaddima, and in Mukaddima, chapter 6, he believed that life had evolved from lower to higher life forms, and humans were derived from the world of monkeys. Much of the Arab world, however, enjoyed reading the writings of Aristotle, who, as we mentioned, was against evolution, and from the Arab world, the writings of Aristotle became popular again in the Western world. And one particular man who deeply read Aristotle was Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas is probably one of the greatest theologians the Catholic Church had from 1225 to 1274. 
However, even Thomas Aquinas said that Genesis was not literal and it should not be interpreted to conflict with natural philosophies, which is was the ancient world for science. Now, there wasn't, however, a great deal of evolution until we get to about the 1700s, and then particularly in France, a lot of people thinking that idea came up. There was Pierre-Louis Maupertuis, who lived from 1698 to 1759, and he pioneered in genetics, and he believed that life forms may have changed over time. There was Georges-Louis Leclerc Comte de Buffon from 1707 to 1788, and he believed that the feline cat species, such as lions and tigers and lynxes and house cats, had a common ancestor, as did many other similar kinds of animals. And he was a French philosopher. Another French philosopher and a deist was Denis Diderot. He lived from 1713 to 84. And he wrote about natural selection and believed that species were constantly changing. And then there was Lord Monboddo, 1714 to 1799. He was a Scottish jurist. And he said that apes were related to man. And he had an influence on Erasmus Darwin. Erasmus Darwin lived from 1731 to 1802. He was an English philosopher a poet and a botanist and he wrote a book called Zoonomia which he in 1790s and he asked the question could the earth have been millions of ages in its antiquity and he asked if all the warm-blooded animals had a single common ancestor and he also wrote a book called The Temple of Nature and he, the idea was given to his grandson, Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin, however, didn't just believe it. He went and studied nature before making a conclusion. And around about the same time that Erasmus Darwin wrote that, there was Georges Cuvier in 17. 96, and he wrote about elephant evolution and their relationship to woolly mammoths. And the other man who had a great influence on Charles Darwin was Jean-Baptiste Lamarck. And Lamarck, who lived from 1744 to 1829, believed that animals had evolved by traits acquired during their lifetime. And he believed that God had providentially overseen evolution. He was a deist. And Lamarck believed, in other words, his idea was that if a man and woman were champion bodybuilders and they had bulging muscles, then they would give birth to children that would be born with bulging muscles. And while 
his idea was proven incorrect. He played a major role in getting many people to think outside the square and to consider evolution. And in 1813, there was a William Charles Wells who wrote about human evolution. And then finally, there was Alfred Wallace, who lived from 1823 to 1913, and he was a biologist. He was a friend of Charles Darwin, and he came to the discovery of natural selection and transmutation of the species. In fact, he, he was a quicker thinker than even Charles Darwin was. And to avoid legal disputes and fights, Charles Darwin and Alfred Wallace together published a joint paper on evolution in 1858. Which then brings us finally to Charles Darwin, who lived from 1809 to 1882, So he was born several years after his grandfather Erasmus was dead. But he read his book and considered it, and he read Lamarck. And Charles Darwin wrote three books. He wrote The Voyage of the Beagle, The Origin of the Species, and The Descent of Man. The Voyage of the Beagle was in 1839. And Charles Darwin, at the time, was a devout Christian, a believer in creationism and in, and in intelligent design. And Charles Darwin wanted to eventually become an Anglican vicar. And his travels all around the world, he went to South America to the Galapagos, and he went to Australia and to Madagascar, he saw all these bizarre island species that were different from elsewhere. And he concluded that species on islands had evolved differently from elsewhere. He looked at the beaks of the finches in the Galapagos. And then finally in 1859 he published On the Origin of the Species in which he attributed to the work of the Creator how animals had evolved. And this was after many, many years of studying the life cycle and the food chain and how animals speciated. And then in 1871, he wrote a book called The Descent of Man. And he looked at the skeletons and skulls of apes and compared them to humans and he wrote about the missing link because at the time there were no links uh, connecting humans with apes. There was, however, he did know of the Neanderthal species and he concluded, unlike most people at the time, that the Neanderthal was not our ancestor but it was a long-distant cousin. And only in the 20th century was he proven correct in that. And a lot of people today love to say, aha, see, there's a missing link. And there was a missing link when Charles Darwin wrote about it. But since that time, they've found 
many species that link them together. There was the Australopithecus and many different skeletons of the Australopithecus have been found in Africa, in South Africa and Central Africa. And they were an upright walking ape that walked on two legs like we do. And then there was the Homo habilis, which was more human-like than the Australopithecus. And then in China and other parts of Asia and Africa and many, many parts of the world, they've found evidence of the Homo erectus. So eventually they started to find more and more links to the different species. Charles Darwin also couldn't prove any link between reptiles and birds and then in 1862 a mere three years later the Archaeopteryx was discovered. He was also rejected by numerous contemporaries of the time and why should we be surprised? No because when a brand new scientific theory gets put out there a, science, a scientist shouldn't just jump up and believe it. They should carefully study it and reflect on it and think on it. It took Charles Darwin many, many years himself to come to this conclusion. Creationists point out that Michael Faraday, who was a Christian and a scientist, uh, they've said that he was opposed to Darwin's theory of evolution I went and did some research on this and I found out that no, he never said anything about Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. For starters, he died in 1867, a mere eight years after it had been published, and he was silent on it, probably because he knew he would look foolish if he took the side of a theory that might later be discredited or if he attacked it and it was proven to be correct. In any case, his area of expertise was electromagnetism. He knew that Charles Darwin was an expert in biology. I've also pointed out that Louis Pasteur, a devout Catholic, rejected uh, Darwin's theory of evolution because it couldn't be proven in an experiment. However... Louis Pasteur lived in the 19th century. He didn't live in our time where we know about transduction, how one species of bacteria can pass its DNA and unite it with another species. If we'd had the technology of today, he may have seen it differently. And so many people rejected Darwin initially because it was a not a widely believed theory, evolution at the time, and because there simply was not enough data or evidence in the 19th century, but today we have a lot more. And by the late 19th century, most scientists and most Christians accepted evolution and had found ways to harmonise it with their scriptural beliefs. Another man 
who contributed greatly to our understanding of evolution, was Gregor Mendel. He lived from 1822 to 1884, and he was an Austrian Catholic monk. And he made pioneering discoveries in heredity, in genetics, in peas. And he looked at recessive and dominant genes, and he contributed massively to our understanding of natural selection. And I met a creationist who argued with me and told me that Gregor Mendel had attacked and denounced Darwin. In reality, Charles Darwin and Gregor Mendel never knew of each other's existence. As far as we're aware, you've got to remember this was the 19th century. This was not the age of the internet and social media. But if they did meet, I have no doubt they would have had a very interesting and stimulating conversation and exchanging one another's ideas, and I think they would have liked each other. And also, in the early 19th century, there was the... From the 1790s to the early 19th century, scientists concluded that the Earth was many millions of years old, or hundreds of millions of years old, based on rock strata and uniformitarianism. And some of the people that pioneered these discoveries were devout Christians. And then evolution was greatly enhanced in the 20th century by three discoveries. One was the discovery of plate tectonics and dating the Earth's surface, which gave us a more accurate picture of how old the Earth was, which was several billion years old, which was enough time for all the changes in evolution to have occurred. And then there was the discovery of DNA and mutations, which is how evolution occurs. And then there was also the discovery of many more transitional species that show evolution. There was cynodonts, which are furry reptiles, which proved a connection between mammals and reptiles in an evolutionary species. There's a lot of urban myths about Charles Darwin. A good book to read is called Saving Darwin, How to Be a Christian and Believe in Evolution by Carl W. Gibson. And some people believe he was some evil, dastardly man who hated God and hated Christianity and he invented evolution to try and destroy it. And then there was a Lady Hope who spread a urban myth that he recanted and repented of evolution on his deathbed and converted to Christianity. And that, of course, is garbage. It's uh, just an urban legend. The real Charles Darwin was a devout Christian to start with who wanted to eventually become an Anglican minister 
and his wife was a devout believer. But he was a man who slowly, gradually, not willingly, turned to agnosticism. And I believe the reason, and Carl Gibson's book argues the same, that because he was a creationist and a believer in intelligent design, it was what turned him off God. It was looking at tapeworms and snakes and different species of how they would torture and kill other species of animal, and he concluded that if God had deliberately designed creatures like that, then he was the evil one. And we're going to look later on at intelligent design, whether or not it's a very good or persuasive argument for God's existence. A Christian Debunks Creationism by Paul Martin Read by the author, copyright 2019 Paul Martin's Fine Films and Audiobooks Chapter 1 The Meaning of Genesis 1 and 2 I'm going to read Genesis 1 and 2 and then look at the meaning of what this scripture says. I'm reading from the World English Bible. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was on the surface of the deep. God's spirit was hovering over the surface of the waters. God said, let there be light. There was light. God saw the light and saw that it was good. God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was evening and there was morning, one day. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and divided the waters which were under the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. There was evening and there was morning, a second day. God said, Let the waters under the sky be gathered together to one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. God saw that it was good. God said, let the earth put forth grass, herbs yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind, with its seed in it on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth grass, herbs yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit, with its seed in it, after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, and there was morning, a third day. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of sky to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. 
God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of sky to give light to the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of sky. God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle, creeping things, and animals of the earth after their kind, and it was so. God made the animals of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. God saw that it was good. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In God's image, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, Behold, I have given you every herb yielding seed which is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which bears fruit yielding seed. It will be your food to every animal of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life. I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. On the seventh day, God finished his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day, from all his work which he had made. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because he rested in it from all his work which he had created and made. This is the history of the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that Yahweh God made earth and the heavens. And that's the end of the passage of Genesis 1 from verse 1 to chapter 2 verse 4.
And now the second account is from Genesis chapter 2 verse 5 to the end of the chapter. No plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up. For Yahweh God had not caused it to rain on the earth. There was not a man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Yahweh God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Yahweh God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, Yahweh God made every tree to grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out of Eden to water the garden and from there it was parted and became four heads. The name of the first is Pishon. This is the one which flows through the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. There is aromatic reason and the onyx stone. The name of the second river is Gihon, the same river that flows through the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hidekel. This is the one which flows in front of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Yahweh God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Yahweh God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, Yahweh God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every animal of the field. But for man, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. He made the rib which Yahweh God had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man will leave his father and his mother and will join with his wife and they will be one flesh. They were both naked the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. 
So the early chapters of Genesis talk about the creation event. It's actually two different accounts. They use a lot of symbolic language, uh, especially Genesis chapter 1. It's structured in repetition like poetry. It has, and God said, and it was so, and there was evening and morning the whatever day, and God saw that it was good. So it's structured in poetry, and the word day, or Hebrew yom, has different meanings in the same text. Uh, It's referring to a 12-hour day in this poetry of evening and morning, Then in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4, it calls the entire creation week the day that the Lord God created the heavens and the earth. In fact, it uses the term as well. This is the history of the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created. That's not talking about a literal week. That's calling it the history of the generations, which is suggesting a long period. And if you want to understand the creation, it's good to also read the other parallel creation accounts in Scripture. Psalm 90, like Genesis, was also written by Moses, and that uses the terminology of God's creation, it invokes a day again and says that a day can be like a thousand years or a thousand years can be like a day. And it also refers to us as coming from dust and to dust we return, which is parallel with Genesis chapter 3. Another good creation account is Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 to 30. Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22, which is talking about wisdom, says, Yahweh possessed me in the beginning of his work, before his deeds of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, before the earth existed. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there was no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills... I was brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the beginning of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he set a circle on the surface of the deep. When he established the clouds above. When the springs of the deep became strong. When he gave to the sea its boundary that the waters should not violate his commandment, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was the craftsman by his side. I was a delight day by day, always rejoicing before him. And so this passage in Proverbs describes the creation as being a very, very long time ago. And it talks about the eternity of God. Genesis 1 is also parallel with Revelation chapters 21 and 22, which talks about the new heavens and the new earth. 
And another great creation passage is in Job chapter 38. And it says, verse 4, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, declare? Where were you when the foundations of it fastened, or who laid its cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted with joy, or who shut up the sea? And another passage that is also parallel to creation is Psalm 104, which talks about the wonder of creation, and also John chapter 1, which borrows Genesis' talk, but applies it to the word, which means Jesus. And in Proverbs chapter 8, it talks about the creation of the oceans, but in Genesis chapter 1, the oceans already exist. And the word day has different meanings. Exodus chapter 20 verse 5 says that in six days God created the heavens and the earth. But as we've shown, the word yom or day has multiple meanings, similar to in English, where we might say, in my father's day, it took ten days to go across the Nullarbor Plain in daytime. And it's similar to that. It has a variety of meanings. And Hugh Ross, the old earth creationist, uh, quotes Gleason Archer, who talks about the Feast of Tabernacles, the Israelites have. And the Israelites celebrated it in a, as an eight-day feast, but it was about a 40-year period, which was much longer than the eight days. The point about the seven days, six days of work and one day of rest, is the number seven is a number of perfection and completion in the scripture. And the other thing is that the earth is God's temple, palace. The earth is a sacred place. Isaiah chapter 66 verse 1, God says, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. So God's throne is in heaven and the earth is his footstool. And where do you have a footstool for a royal throne? But in a palace, it's a sacred place. And the last thing that is put in a temple in the ancient Near East in biblical times is first they would consecrate and form a temple, then they would fill it. And the last thing that would be put in the consecrated temple was the image of the gods to whom that temple was dedicated. In Genesis 1, we find that human beings are made in the image of God. The Catholic Catechism in paragraph 337 says, God himself created the visible world in all its richness, diversity and order. Scripture presents the work of the creator symbolically as a succession of six days of divine work concluded by the day of rest of the seventh day. 
So it describes the days as symbolic. And the purpose of Genesis chapter 1 was to debunk the Egyptian and Babylonian myths. The Babylonians were a major nation and a neighbour to Egypt, and that was where Abraham came from. He was a Babylonian. And the ancient Egyptians were the people to whom the Israelites had lived for over 400 years. That's almost half a millennium. Think about it. The Israelites went into Egypt as a family and came out as a nation of roughly 2 million people. If that's the case, then that means that Israel became a nation in Egypt. And as a result, they would have been people that had a lot of Egyptian thinking. And the Genesis also has similarities to the Enuma Elish, a Babylonian creation myth. And the pagans believed that the sun, the moon and the stars and the water were different deities, different gods. And instead, Genesis turns that on its head and says, no, there is one God and the sun and the moon and the stars are simply signs and substances created by this one God. And so now I'm going to have a look at the days of creation in Genesis 1. The ancient Egyptians believed that creation came out of a watery chaos, a watery abyss that was called Nun. And in the beginning, they had darkness and silence. And out of that, they believed the gods created the world. Now, the Egyptians were obsessed with balance and equilibrium because the ancient Egyptians lived in a very green, fertile land near the Nile River that was also a backdrop to a burning desert. And they had an obsession with balance and equilibrium. And Genesis chapter 1, it begins in Genesis by saying the earth was formless and empty. And that's the key to understanding the whole chapter. Formless and empty. So what do you do to change that? Forming and filling. The first three days of creation are forming and the Last three days, four, five and six, are filling. And days one, two and three run parallel to days four, five and six. That is day one with day four, day two with day five, day three with day six. Finishing off with day seven, the day of rest and the day of completion. So day one begins with light created and separated from darkness. Evening and morning one day. It doesn't say evening and morning the first day. And there could of course be billions of years of gaps between verse one, verse two and verse three. But that of course depends on your interpretation. I take the view that it's a literary framework. 
So, and that's the forming of light from darkness. Day two is the forming of water separated from each other. The ancient Israelites believed there were storehouses of rain up in the heavens, that we lived in a sphere, but we lived in a sphere that was covered by a hard dome, a hard rock, Because the Bible is not a science book, but it's communicated to ancient people in a way they would understand. And we can't impose our 21st century ideas of science on that. We've got to understand it the way the ancient people of that time would have understood it. So it's poetry. And day two, the waters are separated from each other. The waters of the ocean and then the waters of the clouds. Day three, waters gather to one place and dry ground appears. God lets the land bring forth trees, plants and bearing fruit. That, of course, would have to be longer than 12 hours. And trees take years to grow. A possible understanding is that Numbers chapter 19 verses 1 to 12 says that those who touched the dead were unclean for seven days, but they were washed in water on the third day. And this is day three. And also the land itself, the earth, brings forth trees. So it's suggesting natural evolutionary processes. Then we get to day four. Now we're about filling. Day four, the sun, moon, and, and stars are made. Could the previous three days have been literal without the sun and the moon? I don't think so. And scientifically this is not possible. But here's the real thing. It runs parallel to day one. Day one, light and darkness. Forming. Day four, filling. The light for the daytime is the sun. The moon and the stars are the lights for night time. It's not about science. It's a panoramic vision of the earth. It's like at the crack of dawn. What comes first, light or the sun? The first thing you would see is light, followed by the sun. They didn't know that the sun was the entire cause of the light. Now we get to day five. The waters of the sea and the sky are filled with marine life and birds. Verse 21 says the great tannin or monsters of the sea were made. Now this is parallel with day two, which talks about an expanse between the waters. Then day five talks about the fish and birds placed in the waters. In other words, the fish for for the sea, all the sea creatures, and then the birds who fly above the sea and up near the clouds where water comes from, forming and filling. Now we get to day six. Let the earth bring forth living creatures. Male and female are created on day six. So if this is a 12-hour day, We have to compare it with Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, God creates the man 
and the man then God creates the animals out of the earth and the man names them and he brings them and he would ha- if he was going to name every animal in existence he would have to have named hundreds of animals per second and still had a long long deep sleep and then he wakes up and says at last or at great length in the Hebrew this is bone of my bone flesh of my flesh So rather than taking them as literal 12-hour days, we see it as poetic, and day six runs parallel with day three. Day three is land and vegetation. Day six is animals, land-dwelling animals and humans. And finally, the Sabbath day, or day seven, has not ended Psalm 95 verses 7 to 11 and Hebrews chapter 4 verses 1 to 11 talk about God's rest. So that again is not a literal day, it has not ended. So rather than Genesis 1 being a literal diary, it's a literary framework that uses a lot of poetic language. Now finally Genesis chapter 2 is also open to interpretation because the name Adam means earth and it means humanity as a whole. Whether you believe he was created instantaneously or whether it's a poetic description of the human race, I'm open to either interpretation Hugh Ross is of the opinion that God created and allowed different hominid species to evolve in order to warn the the animals to prepare them for the coming of human beings because human beings have driven many animals to extinction, especially when humans have rapidly encroached on somewhere. But what we know is that the Garden of Eden, rather than the earth itself, was a blessed, beautiful sanctuary of God's presence. And God made Eve, if they were instantaneous, miraculous events. Uh, I prefer the quote by Billy Graham, the greatly respected evangelist. And Billy Graham said, The Bible is not a book of science. I accept the creation story. I believe that God did create the universe. I believe God created man. And whether it came by an evolutionary process and at a certain point he took this person or being and made him a living soul or not does not change the fact that God did create man. Whichever way God did it makes no difference as to what man is. And while there were hominids that lived for many, many hundreds of thousands of years, in only the past hundred thousand years, in a very short period of time, modern humans went from living in caves to walking on the moon, while the other hominid species barely went beyond the use of fire and tools whereas the human race had clothing and complex language 
and a knowledge of the divine. So God breathed in man and he became a living being with a relationship with God. And people might ask, well, what sort of a relationship with God did the Neanderthals or the Homo erectuses have? And the answer is we simply don't know. All I can say, I have contemplated and wondered about it for many years, but all I can conclude is that the book of Genesis was written long after these species were all gone and extinct. And the Bible is written for us modern humans and for our relationship with God. A Christian debunks creationism by Paul Martin, read by the author, copyright 2019, Paul Martin's fine films and audiobooks. Chapter 2. Does the Bible teach creationism? So we just showed in the previous chapter that Genesis 1 and 2 is poetic and Genesis 1 is structured as a literary framework. But what about the rest of Scripture? Does it teach creationism? Or is that a case of creationists reading into the text things that are not there? So this is what creationists claim. They claim that the universe is 6,000 to 10,000 years old and it was created in six literal days. And nowhere does the Bible say how old the universe is. The Bible actually teaches that the earth is very old. Genesis chapter 49 verse 26 refers to the ancient mountains and the eternal hills. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 6 says the ancient mountains were crumbled, the age-old hills collapsed. And Job chapter 15 verse 7 says, Are you the first man who was born, or were you brought forth before the hills? So we see there that the scripture, while it doesn't say how old the earth is, it teaches that it's very old. And in Psalm 90 verse 10, it says that human lifespan is literally 70 to 80 years of age. Yet, poetically, the Psalms describe man's lifespan as being like a breath Psalm 144 verse 4 says, Man is like a breath. His days are like a shadow that passes away. And Exodus chapter 20 verse 6 talks about the mercy God shows to a thousand generations of those who love him. And Jeremiah chapter 31 Verses 35 and 36 refer to the fixed laws of the heavens. And God does not explain scientific mysteries to people. In Job chapter 38 verse 33, God asks a rhetorical question to Job. Do you know the order of heaven and can you explain its rules here on earth? And nor does God expect these ancient people to understand it and yet the bible tells us 
that there are fixed laws of heaven and there is knowledge out there in the earth waiting to be discovered. Job chapter 12 verse 8 says, Speak to the earth and it shall teach you. And the scripture tells us that God has spoken through nature. Psalm 19 verses 1 and 6 and Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 21. And so God has spoken through nature. God has fixed laws in the heavens, as Jeremiah 31 says. And there's knowledge out there waiting to be found. So it lays the framework for scientific inquiry. Likewise, testing things is part of science and it's part of scripture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 21 says, Test all things and hold firmly that which is good. So the Bible actually lays the foundation for scientific inquiry and it tells us that the earth is very, very old. So we've established that the creationist claim of the earth being 6,000 to 10,000 years old is simply not true. And we'll look at a later chapter at the scientific evidence for the age of the earth and the age of the universe. The next creationist claim is they claim that there was no physical death of any sort until Adam and Eve sinned and that all animals were vegetarian. Well, the scripture doesn't say that there was no physical death in animals. It's simply inferred. God warned Adam and Eve that they would die if they ate of the forbidden tree. And that death, it is referring to spiritual death, to Romans chapter 5. And it says that just as in Adam we die, so in Christ we're made alive. So if death applies to animals, then we would have to say that animals need to be made alive in Christ. And furthermore, nature itself tells us that God has established his order and we see from nature the food chain where if, if all the animals were vegetarian, they would have eaten all the vegetation and there'd be nothing left to eat and then they'd starve. And if there were no carnivores to keep down the numbers of herbivores, they would grow and increase to the point that they were all standing on top of each other. They also claim that there's no life in outer space. The scripture says nothing about whether or not there's life out there. And it's beyond arrogant to claim that there is no life without any evidence. Now, we also can't claim that there is life until we have evidence. But what we say for the time being in science is we don't know if there is life in outer space. But there may well prove to be soon it may be discovered. They also claim that global warming is a hoax because of their 
interpretation of Genesis 8.22, which says, All the days of the earth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, night and day will not cease. But that has nothing to do with whether or not the temperature can rise by several degrees by the end of the 21st century. And we're going to look in a later chapter at the overwhelming scientific evidence for climate change, which has been caused by human activity. And creationists claim as well that humans and dinosaurs coexisted based on the misreading of some parts of Job. And... In Job chapter 40, verses 15 and 24, it talks about the behemoth. It says he eats grass like an ox, verse 15. Verse 17 says, moves his tail like a cedar. doesn't say he's got a tail as big as a cedar tree, only that he moves his tail like one. And he lies under the lotus trees. Sauropods can't do that. They're far too big. And verse 22 says, the lotuses cover him, willows surround him. That, my friends, is a description of a water buffalo, not a sauropod. And then in Job chapter 41, it describes the leviathan, which appears to be a description of a crocodile using poetic language. Now, there are claims in uh, West Africa and Central Africa in some of the jungles by local Africans that there is a sauropod dinosaur creature called Mokeli Mbembe, which is supposed to be a dinosaur. And they claim that if this animal was discovered, it would disprove evolution. Well, no, it would not disprove evolution. It would only disprove our assumption that dinosaurs went extinct 65 million years ago. All it would prove is that some one species of sauropod did survive. That has no bearing whatsoever on whether or not evolution is true. Now, I can't say for certain if Mokeli and Bambi is just a legend or whether it really does exist. However, with the dramatic increase in Africa's population over the past one and a half centuries and not a single photograph or video coming forward of Mokeli and Bambi, it's fairly safe to assume that that animal probably doesn't exist because it would be more likely than ever that it be found. And many of the ancient dragon legends come from ancient people discovering dinosaur bones. You see, ancient people didn't know how long a skeleton had been dead. They didn't have carbon dating or radiometric dating methods and they simply assumed that bones got eaten or rotted away. They didn't understand fossilisation like we do. And they would come across a dinosaur skeleton 
that had been dead for millions of years. And then they would think that this animal had died recently. And so some of these skeletons of animals can look especially sinister or creepy, especially to an ancient person who didn't go through primary school like the average person of today does. So that's where a lot of these legends come from. So we can dismiss the creationist view that humans and dinosaurs coexisted. Uh, The next thing that the creationists claim is that Noah's flood covered the entire planet, every square centimetre of Antarctica and the Himalaya mountains, and that the flood was ended by very, very lightning speed fast geological activity. The geological activity of the Earth's tectonic plates had moved so fast they would have wiped out all life on Earth from the sheer emission of heat and all the animals safely aboard the ark would have been cooked to death. Furthermore, scripture uses terminology of the whole world, which really means the whole land, in regards to the known world of biblical times. Acts chapter 2 verse 5 says that there were pious men from every nation under heaven, but the furthest nation mentioned is Parthia. And 1 Kings chapter 10 verse 24 says all the earth desired to see Solomon. And Daniel chapter 2 verse 39 says that the ancient Greek empire would rule the whole world. And clearly the terminology does not mean what we think it to mean. As modern 21st century people, our definition of the whole world is not Noah's definition of the whole world. Noah didn't have a whole con- a concept of the whole world that we have. When I think of the whole world, I think of a photograph of the Earth from space. And yet nobody had that concept until the 20th century, when people went to space and took photographs. So we can dismiss the creationist view that the flood covered the whole world. And they claim that the flood ended through rapid geological activity and that has to be dismissed because Genesis chapter 8 verse 1 says that the flood was ended by a strong wind, which is exactly what would have happened in a large localised flood. And Mesopotamia, where Noah lived, is a very low-altitude area that has had a lot of flooding. Creationists also like to say that if God could create Adam, apparently at a mature age, assuming that it's literal rather than poetic, why couldn't he make the whole earth to appear billions of years old? Well, first of all, did God create Adam with a false memory of being a baby and growing up? Probably not. 
And so we don't have Adam's body to look at, but what we do have is God's creation. And if God has spoken through creation, and God cannot lie, as it repeatedly says in Scripture, then we must assume that the earth is old. And if God created the earth to appear old, then we should assume that it's old. But I don't believe it would be created to appear old, especially since the scripture doesn't even tell us how old the earth is. So why should we assume it's a certain age? Why not just look at what science says and accept that? Finally, could there have been animal death prior to sin in Genesis chapter 3? And creationists point out how in Genesis chapter 1, God described his creation as good or very good. And if God did a good creation, their reasoning goes, there can't have been any animal death. Well, we have to actually look at the meaning of the word good. It's the Hebrew word tov. And that Hebrew word tov for good is used in Psalm 104, verses 21 to 28. And this scripture says that lions cry out to God for food. And God gives them good, or tov, tov, good things to eat. So God is saying... Present tense, after the fall, lions look to God for food and he gives them good things to eat. And since lions don't eat fruit or grass, they eat antelopes and other animals that they get their hands on, God's saying that when a lion kills an animal, it's a good thing. And Genesis chapter 1 verse 21 says that God created the large sea creatures. And that actually literally means the savage leviathans. So he created fierce creatures and God called his creation good, which included lions eating their food, which is other animals. So God calls death in the animal kingdom a good thing. Job chapter 39, verses 13 to 17, God uh, talks about the imperfections of the ostrich. And it says the ostrich is that way because this is how God made them. So Job chapter 39, verses 13 to 17 says, The wings of the ostrich wave proudly. But are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs on the earth, warms them in the dust, and forgets that the foot may crush them, or that the wild animal may trample them. She deals harshly with her young ones, as if they were not hers. Though her labour is in vain, she is without fear, because God has deprived her of wisdom. Neither has he imparted to her understanding. So the ostrich is imperfect and it is that way because that's how God 
made it. And Romans chapter 8 verse 20 says that creation was subjected to futility or frustration, that is suffering, not by its own will, but by the will of God who subjected it. And many people think, ah, that was because of the fall or because of sin, except Romans chapter 8 verse 20 does not say this happened because of sin. It happened because it was the will of God. And so, my friends, it seems that the scriptures do not support the dogmatic and unscientific beliefs of creationism. So they haven't got a leg to stand on. They're holding on to something that is not supported by the Bible and it's not supported by science. I would rather stick with the Bible for my spiritual beliefs and science for my understanding of the physical world. And together, these two can be a match made in heaven. A Christian Debunks Creationism by Paul Martin Read by the author, copyright 2019, Paul Martin's Fine Films and Audio Books. Chapter 3. How Old is the Universe? Creationists are very, very dogmatic in believing that the universe is 6,000 to 10,000 years old. The Bible, of course, doesn't say anywhere how old the universe is. The Hindus believed the universe was about 3 billion years old. The ancient Babylonians believed that humans had lived on Earth for over half a million years. The ancient Egyptians believed that the Earth was over 100,000 years old. But they were all... Uh, well short of the mark. So we're going to look at where's the evidence for how old the universe is. And the biggest evidence is distant starlight. When scientists look at the sun, with protective lenses of course, or they'd go blind, they see things happening on the sun. They see flares of fire blowing up from the surface. And when they see that happening, they're actually seeing what happened eight minutes ago because it takes the speed of light eight minutes to reach Earth. So when they look at it through a telescope, they're seeing what happened in the past, eight minutes in the past. When scientists study our nearby star, Alpha Centauri, they're seeing it as it was four and a half years ago because it's 4.5 light years away. So they're seeing what happened in the past and when we study the Milky Way galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy is massive. It is 100,000 light years across and we're on the outskirts, the outer part of an end of the Milky Way galaxy. So when we 
study stars at the opposite end of the Milky Way. We're seeing them as they were 80 or 90,000 years ago. And when they study the Andromeda galaxy, a nearby galaxy, they're seeing it as it was 2.3 million years ago because it's 2.3 million light years away. And there are distant stars that are 11 billion light years away, which means we're seeing them as they were 11 billion years ago. And this proves that the universe is at least 11 billion years old. I didn't say 11 billion years old, I said at least that age. That alone proves it. The uh, Alpha Centauri proves the universe is at least 4.5 years old. And the Milky Way galaxy proves that the universe is at least 100,000 years old, and so on. And scientific studies from physics have determined that the universe is about 13.8 billion years old. In the early 1990s, they believed it was about 17 billion years old. Then in the early 2000s, they said it's about 13.7 billion years old. But as technology and science has gotten gradually better and better, we now know that it's roughly 13.8 billion years old. And the Big Bang was a creation event out of nothing. No one knows in science what caused the Big Bang, and science can't determine things that happened in the supernatural. Science is and evolution is not for or against the supernatural. It simply only deals with the natural. We as Christians believe scripture that it was God who created all things long ago in the very beginning. And science tells us that long ago the universe was created out of nothing. And if the universe was created, then it had to have had a creator, logically. And that's what we Christians call God. And the Big Bang Theory was even banned in communist Romania because they believed it supported religion. And when, the, when we study stars and galaxies, the further away they are, the further into the past we're looking. So Ken Ham likes to ask the question, were you there millions of years ago? To which we can say, Yes, we are there. Now that is terrible grammar, what I've seen, uh, what I've just said, but what I'm giving as an example is we can see into the past and we can see that the universe is billions of years old. But if you're going to believe that it was... 6,000 years old, then you'd have to say that all the stars in the universe were within a radius of 6,000 light years away. 
and Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden would have had no morning and evening. They would have had stars everywhere. They would have all been blind from the light and the sheer heat would have cooked them all. The Bible says that God cannot lie. At Numbers chapter 23 verse 19, Titus chapter 1 verse 2, and Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18 tell us that God cannot lie and that there are fixed laws in the heavens, Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 35 to 36, and that God has spoken through nature, Psalm 19, 1 to 6. So, could God tell lies? Could God have created light in transit? The problem with that is I'll give you an example. Astronomers once saw a star exploding that was 150 million light years away. That means they were seeing an event that happened 150 million years ago. And if the universe is only 6,000 years old, then it means God's created a fake history that never happened. And if God cannot lie and he's spoken through nature and he has fixed laws in the heavens, then I think it's just a lot easier and simpler to believe that the universe is billions of years old and it doesn't destroy our faith in Christ or his sacrifice for our sins on the cross. It's not determined on whether the universe is 6,000 years old or billions of years old. Would God tell a lie? And the answer is no. Is the speed of light slowing down? That was an argument that the creationists were using a lot in the 1980s, but they've since retracted it and they've come out and said, no, no, that doesn't work. Because, for example, when Adam had sexual relations with his wife, they would have exploded if the speed of light had been a lot faster. So it would have been physically impossible to survive. So now that we've established that the universe is billions of years old, how old is the earth itself? And I once held in my hand a rock that was over four billion years old. It felt very special to hold this rock. It was more precious to me than any gold or diamond. It was a lot older. But how do we actually know that, you know? Wouldn't you have to be four billion years old to know that this rock is that old? And the answer, my friends, is radiometric dating. And in Daryl Falk's 2004 book, Coming to Peace with Science, he looks a bit at this, but, you know, it's also very well known in geology. And an example is uranium-235 decays into lead 207, and it takes 713 million years for half a sample to decay to lead 207. An atom decay rate is measured with a Geiger counter. 
So if the earth was eternal, there would be no uranium, only lead. And if the earth was 6,000 years old, there would be no lead. So this proves alone that the earth is at least several hundred million years old. Then there is potassium-40, which decays into argon-40 over a period of 1.25 billion years. And for half a sample of potassium-40 to decay into it, And when it forms, potassium has a fixed number of potassium atoms and its decay rate can be measured. There's about 40 different isotope measurements that are all independent of each other. And the oldest rocks that have ever been found are zirconium silicate crystals from Western Australia and they're 4.3 billion years old. And since these rocks could not be older than the Earth itself, the Earth must be older than the rocks found there. So it's estimated that the Earth is about 4.5 billion years old, with a a margin of error of about 5%. So being wrong by a few percentage points does not invalidate these readings and nor does it validate a 600-year-old planet. And there's many other evidences too for the age of the Earth. We have ice layers that have been laid down annually. In Greenland, they go back 40,000 years and Antarctica's oldest ice goes back 800,000 years. Now, these don't prove the Earth is only 800,000 years. They prove that the ice has been laid down there for 800,000 years. So they prove that the Earth has to be older than that 800,000-year period. Then there are valves, which are sediment layers in lakes. Every winter to spring produces a valve, and Lake Sujetsu in Japan has a sequence of a 100,000 valves, which means that that lake is at least a 100,000 years old. And then there are coral reefs that are many thousands of years in age, and then there are also tree rings, which show ages a lot older than 6,000 years. There's a tree in Sweden called Old Chico, which is 9,550 years old. There is Jurupo Oak in California, America, which is 13,000 years old. And also in the United States is Pando, a colonial colony of quaking aspens. And it's believed to be the oldest living organism on the planet of 80,000 years old. So we can see, my friends, that the universe, the earth itself, is much older than 6,000 years. And God has given the evidence for that. And when I was transitioning from 
a young earth creationist to an old earth creationist, and then I eventually became a theistic evolutionist, I thought to myself, why would God give atheists and evolutionists all the evidence for an old earth and give us Christians no evidence for an old earth? And when I realised that the Bible didn't even say how old the earth was or the universe... I realised that it was utter folly to defend a 6,000-year-old Earth and universe when science doesn't support it and the Bible doesn't either. A Christian debunks creationism by Paul Martin, read by the author, copyright 2019, Paul Martin's fine films and audio books. Chapter 4. Evidence for Evolution What is the evidence for evolution that animals have evolved from one species to another? Creationists claim that there is no evolution, that there is no change to the DNA code, and that there is no change from one species to another. So we're going to have a look at the evidence. The first piece of evidence is the age of the earth, which has just been covered in the previous chapter. And that's given plenty of time for animal species to diversify. But even regardless of the age of the earth, Charles Darwin in the 19th century believed that evolution would take long periods of time. One discovery that's been made in the 21st century is that evolution in many cases has occurred more rapidly than previously believed. So some evolution takes long periods of time, but it's been observed to be a lot more rapid. The second piece of evidence is transitional fossils and transitional living creatures. We see evidence in amphibians. They're a transition between fish and reptiles. One species of amphibians is the Axolotl, which is an amphibian, it has the ability to regenerate limbs that are lost and they have both lungs and gills for breathing, even though they only breathe in water. They have lungs and gills. And then we see transitions, again with amphibians and fish, that went the transition to land animals. We see, for example, the Tiktaalik, which was an amphibian that could live in water and walk on land as well. And throughout Africa, South America and Australia, we have the lungfish. They're a species of fish that evolved in the Triassic period. And lungfish can breathe water and air and they can live without 
food and water for three to five years, which shows they have a great resilience for adapting to different environments. And theistic evolution is what one theologian by the name of Howard J. Van Til calls a fully gifted creation, which by that he means gifted with all the capabilities for self-organisation. And then we see transitions from reptiles to birds. In the 1860s, they discovered fossils of the Archaeopteryx, but then there was not much else throughout most of the 20th century. Some creationists argued that the Archaeopteryx was a hoax, or that it was just a bird. But when you look carefully at the skeleton of the Archaeopteryx, one can see that it's the skeleton of a dinosaur with feathers, and it has teeth. And then in the 1990s, and since then, they've discovered almost 50 species of feathered dinosaurs. And it's believed that many species of dinosaurs, such as the Tyrannosaurus rex, may have also been feathered. We also see mangrove trees, trees that can grow in salty water and are likely a transition from sea-dwelling life forms, plant life forms, to land-dwelling life forms. And then we see transitions from reptiles to mammals. We have cynodonts. Cynodonts were reptiles with fur. And then we see mammals such as the platypus and the echidna, who are monotremes. They're mammals that lay reptile eggs. Scientists have found that there are more genetic similarities between humans and chimpanzees than there are between African and Asian elephants. In Charles Darwin's time, there was no known link between humans and apes, so it was called the missing link. And then there were two examples that came forward that people believed might have been a a link. There was Piltdown Man, which turned out to be a hoax, and that hoax lasted from 1912 to 1953. And then there was Nebraska Man, which was a mistake, which was based on a tooth of an extinct pig, and that was only believed by a handful of scientists from 1922 until 1927. And as soon as it was known that Piltdown Man was a hoax and Nebraska Man was a mistake, the science books stopped talking about it and using it as an example. However, I've met creationists who say that evolutionists are 
are still using these examples in textbooks as proof of evolution, and that's utter garbage. But it shows you how deluded these people are. So let's look at some real examples of which thousands of skeletons and skulls have been found and which are not hoaxes of hominids. And the first is the Australopithecus. There are several species of Australopithecus. The Australopithecus was an upright walking ape. It had feet like a human and it walked upright and it lived in Africa from 4 million to 2.4 million years ago. Then there was the Homo habilis, which was similar to the Australopithecus, but it was more human-looking. And the Homo habilis skulls and skeletons that have been found are dated from about 2.4 to 1.5 million years ago. And then the one that is especially has an incredible amount of samples is the Homo erectus. And the Homo erectus lived from about 1.8 million years ago until about 30,000 years ago. And then there was the Homo sapiens, or humans, that are thought to have first originated about 350,000 years ago till today. And there were, of course, several other species of hominids that are not direct ancestors, but long distant cousins. There is Homo antecessor that lived about 1.2 million years ago until 800,000 years ago. And they were the last common ancestor of humans and Neanderthals. And then there were Neanderthals. Neanderthals lived from about 400,000 years ago to 28,000 years ago. And then there was also Homo floresiensis, which was a species of Homo erectus. They were a miniature species that stood about 1.1 metres tall, or 3 feet 7 inches. And they were found on the Indonesian island of Flores. And they lived from 100,000 years ago to about 12,000 years ago. And from Australopithecus to Homo habilis to Homo erectus to Homo sapiens, the species became gradually more and more human. There's also whale evolution. Whales, for example, have a good series of transitional fossils of related species, such as the Ampulocetus and the Pachycetus and the strong evidence that the whales were once land-dwelling animals with four feet that evolved in uh, flippers. And then there's animals. The, The simple fact of evolution is that animals have offspring that are slightly different from their parents. And the average person has about 60 mutations different from their parents. And mutations are not all bad. Many of them are beneficial. Another evidence for evolution 
is vestigial body parts. When a dolphin is being formed in the womb, the embryo has hoofs, and those hoofs get changed into flippers, which is evidence that they had ancestors with hoofs, and that they could have evolved from hoofed creatures to water-dwelling creatures with flippers, then we see a very strong evidence of evolution. We also look at the rear legs of whales. Whales don't have rear legs, of course, but they have the bones of rear legs inside their body that serves no purpose, but it's evidence that they once had rear legs, and those rear legs evolved to become a whale's body. And then there's flightless birds who once flew but evolved to become just land-dwelling animals. And humans, on rare occasions, are born with tails. It's known as the cosigeal projection, and a bit of surgery can get rid of it. And then snakes in their embryos have limbs that appear and are then absorbed before they hatch. The same thing with whales as embryos. They have limbs and then they get absorbed into the body. So if God was to deliberately design these bodies, he did them with vestigial body parts that serve no purpose. I think it's just easier to believe that they've evolved, and that's the evidence that they evolved. The next piece of evidence is genetic mapping or DNA coding. And an example I use is to say that all dogs, wolves, foxes, coyotes and canine creatures are closely related. And they can pretty much all of them crossbreed with each other. And not only are all the canine species related to each other, but they're distantly related to bears. And there's even a transitional species called the bear dog. It's long extinct. It lived from 42 million years ago to 2.6 million years ago. And the bear dog is known as the Amphicyanidae. The Amphicyanidae had dog and bear characteristics, although it was slightly more closely related to the dogs than to the bears, but it's a transition. And not only that, DNA, the same DNA that proves all canine species are related to each other, and then all dogs are related closely, then they're a little bit more distantly related to wolves and foxes, and then even more distantly related to bears and seals. And it's the same DNA that's used in all these cases, determines who's closely or not so closely related. And an example is the hyena. Hyenas do look very dog-like, but DNA coding shows they're distantly related to dogs. They're 
they're more closely related to the mongoose and the civet and the cat family. And like those species, they have retractable claws. And although they look more dog-like, the DNA shows who their closest relatives are. And if you ever look at a mongoose walking on all fours, and they often do it too quickly to see clearly, but if they do it slowly, you can see a striking resemblance to the hyena. So cats, hyenas, civets and mongooses are related to each other. And then dogs, bears and seals are related to each other. And both of these families are related, but more distantly. And this is the same technology that's used to prove paternity or who a child's father is. So DNA coding of today has done amazing things. And people can ask themselves, well, how can evolution possibly happen? And those of you who are English grammar majors will know the sentence I'm about to read out. The quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dogs. What's so special about that one sentence? And the answer is, it has all the letters of the alphabet. So if you were to replicate and multiply and rearrange some of those letters, you could get any book in the English language reproduced for enough time, for enough rearrangement. And a DNA code is like that. And because of mutations, changes occur over time. And the next evidence that brings us to is bacterial recombination, transduction. What on earth does that mean? Transduction is the transfer of a portion of DNA from one bacteria species to another, and it happens via bacteriophages. It means that two different species of bacteria with different DNA codes can mix and fuse their two different DNA codes together and form a new species. And it occurs about one in every 10,000 phages. It probably doesn't sound like a lot, but it happens enough times for evolution to work. Now let's think about that. Creationists tell us that DNA does not change, but science shows us that it does, and that two different species of bacteria can come together and pass on each other's information and fuse the DNA strand into one. And transduction with viral vectors is known to change the genes of mammals. Transduction also plays a role in gene therapy and resistance to viruses. So species evolve to become more resistant to viruses. 
And then there's also transformation in genetics. In molecular biology, genetic evolution of a cell is where exogenous or external DNA is acquired from outside. This is called transfection in animal cells where pores, that is holes that open in the cell membrane, allow foreign proteins and that alters the DNA. It transforms and changes an animal's DNA. And then there is also conjugation, in which is the bacterial transfer of DNA material between bacterial cells. So DNA codes are changing all the time through bacterial recombination and through mutations. The next evidence is known as introns. These are nucleotide sequences in genes. They're like gibberish sets of sequences that get inserted into RNA codes. They're RNA sequences and they stay there forever and they can prove common descent if a species has that same set of gibberish. And in the olden days, nobody had the time or the means to count all the strands in a DNA, but now it can be done on computer. Most mammals have approximately 35,000 genes, And Daryl Falk, in his book Coming to Peace with Science, a 2004 book, he's a professor in biology in Hawaii and has spent decades researching this whole topic. And of course, as mentioned before, genetic mutations. The human genome contains about 3.1 billion bases of DNA, So copying mistakes occur during replication. And some mutations are harmful, some are neutral, some are beneficial. And that's how species have gone throughout history. Some devolve and go extinct, others evolve and survive and adapt. And Jerry Coyne, in his 2009 book, Why Evolution is True, on pages 139 to 140, talks about how an E. coli strand evolved on an experiment that was done from 1988 to 2006 that involved 40,000 bacterial generations. Another example of evolution is a seaweed species called Colerpia taxifolia. And it was native to Australian waters of the Indian Ocean and around Australia. And scientists found that if this species was in very, very cold waters, it would experience rapid growth. And due to unethical practices of ships where they don't empty their water until they get to the next port, Calorpa taxifolia ended up being introduced from the Indian Ocean 
to the Mediterranean Sea. And the Mediterranean Sea has colder waters than the Indian Ocean. And this happened, it's believed, in the 1980s. So this seaweed species got introduced to the Mediterranean Sea and it suddenly evolved to rapidly grow and it became bigger and it became a lot more resilient. And this new evolved species of Calerpa taxifolia got accidentally reintroduced back into Australian waters, but it now stayed the way it had evolved. It didn't go back to its original form. And so we see that evolution is happening all the time, even in our lifetimes. Another example of observed changes in species that we see is the flu or influenza virus. And this virus evolves every single year to resist the antibodies that fight it in our bodies. The virus exchanges genes with strains that infect different species and it steals genetic codes from other viruses. The flu virus has multiple strands of RNA in its genome and it mixes and it swaps these strands with flu variants so strands can mutate and evolve even on their own. And we see that viruses evolve and emerge like HIV didn't exist until the latter half of the 20th century or swine flu. And viruses have packages of DNA with a protein covering. Another example is penicillin, which is a group of antibiotics discovered in 1928. And it's been used since 1942 onwards. But many species of bacteria were killed by penicillin, have evolved resistance to it, which they didn't previously have. And then we see the peppered moth evolution from the 19th century. There were light-coloured moths prior to the Industrial Revolution and after the Industrial Revolution they became dark with the increase in soot and air pollution. So they evolved, they became 98% dark by 1895. And then with the reduction in air pollution... By the 1950s, they became light-coloured and began to predominate. The light-coloured ones did. There's also tiger salamanders. Environmental conditions affect their behaviour and cause morphological changes. So they change their teeth if they decide to be a cannibal or a detritus feeder. So this is the same species can evolve its teeth. Another example of rapid evolution is the Italian wall lizard, Podarchus sicula. And the Italian wall, wall lizard 
lives on the island of Podkopista, an island in the Adriatic Sea, and in 1971 they were introduced to an island called Podmkraru. And they, after 1971, they were examined again in 2004 to 2006 and they'd undergone rapid evolution. They had changed their head shape and size. They'd increased their strength in biting and they had new structures in their digestive tract. They had to adapt to a different food source and plants that were tougher and had more fibre and they had evolved sequel valves that were previously unknown in this species. And this is in a 35-year period. And they may have also been affected by eating nematodes that were found in their hind guts. And this report comes from Science Daily in Science News, April the 18th, 2008. And another example of evolution is the Moville Cave in Romania. Limestone sealed the entrance to this cave 5.5 million years ago. And this cave has high levels of carbon dioxide and hydrogen sulphide in the air. And yet it's evolved unique kinds of spiders, water scorpions, centipedes, pseudoscorpions and leeches and they seem to thrive best in the areas of the cave that have the highest levels of carbon dioxide and hydrogen sulphide and that comes from the BBC Extreme Life the Bizarre Beasts Living in Romania's Poison Cave 4th of September 2015 Something to consider in the facts about evolution is the Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium. And this is an example of how evolution will not occur if these conditions are met. No mutation, random mating, no gene flow, a very large population size and no natural selection. If those five things occur, there will be no evolution. So for evolution, there must be mutation, non-random mating, gene flow, a finite population size, and natural selection. Well, when we study nature, we find that there is mutations, As mentioned before, humans have about 60 mutations different from their parents and many of them are beneficial. Non-random mating. In most species there is non-random mating. In most species the females are very selective and they choose often the strongest, biggest and most powerful males. There is also gene flow. Gene flow is not so good though if a species is on the verge of extinction and there are very few of them left. A finite population size. This is why evolution particularly occurs on islands, places like Hawaii, 
New Zealand, Madagascar, Mauritius, Australia have unique wildlife and why evolution occurs more often on islands than on large land masses. And a natural selection, natural selection does occur. So the Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium shows what conditions are needed for evolution to occur and when evolution will not occur. And by studying species, we can see how it occurs. A Christian Debunks Creationism by Paul Martin, read by the author, copyright 2019, Paul Martin's Fine Films and Audio Books. Chapter 5, Intelligent Design. Well, my friends, one of the biggest movements against evolution that has taken a big following is called the Intelligent Design Movement. And in 1987, when the courts in America ruled that creationism could not be taught as science in classes, creationists simply renamed their belief Intelligent Design. Except what they do is they don't argue from the Bible and they don't argue much with science. They simply look at how complex different things are in the world and they argue this is irreducible complexity, meaning it's so complex that only God could have done it or an intelligent designer. Now when they argue along these lines, they're not really arguing in favour of God. They're arguing that anyone, aliens or some, the god or goddesses or gods of other religions could have could be proven. And it's a sort of meaningless, directionless movement. And in 1996, they announced with guns blazing that the intelligent design movement was going to take the scientific world by storm. And about eight years later, they did a review of scientific journals and they found only three scientific journals mentioned the words intelligent design. And two of those three, it was used in a context that had nothing to do with the ID movement. Basically, what they say is that if you were to look at a watch and you look at how well-designed it is, you'd say, well, okay, good. See, this watch did not evolve by random chance. It had to have an intelligent designer. And so far, that sounds good because watches are a very useful tool to have. But the same argument could also be used for a torture chamber. You'd look at a torture chamber and you'd say, OK, this didn't happen by a random accident. Uh, it had to be created by an intelligent designer. But it might make you wonder about the character of such a designer. Much of nature has a lot of savagery. There are snakes that can squirt out poison into your eyes and blind you. Uh, there are tapeworms and other animals that inflict great pain. 
I don't think it's a very persuasive argument to say that the complexity of nature proves a designer did it, especially if it can be explained scientifically. And I think there are other reasons and angles to go out to argue in favour of God's existence. And there are many things that seemed irreducibly complex in the past, but they're no longer. Take, for example, lightning. Thunder and lightning seemed irreducibly complex to the ancient Vikings who worshipped Thor, the god of thunder. And another lightning god was Baal, that the ancient Canaanites and some compromising Israelites worshipped a fertility god. Things like the water cycle or lightning in ancient times, people couldn't explain naturally how it occurred, but now, today, we do know. So if you see complex things and you start arguing, this proves that only God could have physically put it all together, science science may eventually come up with an explanation, and then it will look like God has been beaten, that God is in retreat. This is known as the God of the gaps. It's where you say, okay, look at all this evidence for science, but here are areas, gaps that we can't explain, so we're going to just say God must have done it. But once the evidence comes forward, what's going to happen then? And you run the risk of making God irrelevant. I once saw a video on YouTube, but I can't find it now, it's probably long gone, but it was called This Will Turn You Into a Believer. And I thought, ah, that's interesting. I saw it had a lot more thumbs down than thumbs up votes. And it showed a whole series of different photos that were supposed to prove the existence of God. It showed a picture of a cloud in the shape of a lamb. Given that clouds are always changing shape, I think it's kind of inevitable that eventually you'll get a lamb's head or something or a rhinoceros or a ship or something. And then there was a photo of a nuclear bomb going off and the shape of a hand with a middle finger stuck up in the middle of this nuclear bomb, although obviously it was photoshopped. And then they also included some pictures of deformed babies and conjoined twins. And I thought, um, is this really a Christian video, or is it someone mocking them? And someone sarcastically wrote, "Okay, I'm a believer, but of which God? And someone else sarcastically wrote, Praise the Lord, this has turned me into a believer. I confess that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. So the whole intelligent design, it's a bit like saying that a beautiful sunset proves God's existence. And in a sense, it does to me. But in another sense, it's not a very persuasive argument to use in an academic debate. So the question is then, how should we view creation? 
And I think we should view it from the point of view of Romans chapter 8, that creation is a testing ground by God for us. God has allowed things like pain and suffering because pain and suffering teach us to avoid things. If you touch a hot plate in a kitchen, you want to feel pain. You don't want to just leave your hand there and then not notice anything until it's burnt off. And God has providentially allowed suffering and pain to test us. And God has allowed evolution to evolve over time so that we can learn who we are, but we can also learn to be better people than we are. A Christian Debunks Creationism by Paul Martin, read by the author, copyright 2019, Paul Martin's Fine Films and Audiobooks. Chapter 6. Was Noah's Flood Global? A Christian brother once said to me that you've got a choice. You either have to believe that Noah's flood was covering every square centimetre of our planet, including Antarctica and Mount Everest, or that it was just a fairy tale. And I said, that's the logical fallacy of the faulty dilemma, and there's no reason why we have to choose between these two extremes. And in Genesis chapter 6 to 8, it talks about the flood and the causes. And in verse 3, Yahweh said, My spirit will not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. And it goes on and says, The Nephilim were in the earth in those days, And Yahweh saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only continually evil. Yahweh said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the surface of the ground. Man along with animals, creeping things and birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favour in Yahweh's eyes. So God told Noah to build an ark, and it says in many translations of the Bible that he was going to flood the whole earth. But that doesn't mean our globe. The, a better translation is the whole land. Noah had no concept of the whole planet. The world to him was the world of Mesopotamia. And the Bible often uses terminology of the whole earth or the whole land, and it doesn't mean the whole land. It's the same language used in Genesis chapters 6 to 8. 1 Kings chapter 10 verse 24 says, All the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. And yet the furthest nation that is mentioned is Ethiopia, where the Queen of Sheba visited him. Daniel chapter 2 verse 39 prophesies the third kingdom, which most people agree were the ancient Greeks of 
Macedonia, Alexander the Great. It says, And another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear, rule over all the earth. Now, Alexander the Great's empire did conquer the known world of the time. He conquered the Middle East, modern-day Turkey, and Egypt, and the Persian Empire, and Parthia, where Afghanistan is, and part of India. But this doesn't mean that he also conquered North and South America, Southern Africa, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and Antarctica. And Luke chapter 2 verse 1 says, Now it happened in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. Caesar Augustus didn't even rule the whole planet, but the Romans did rule the known world of the time. And Acts chapter 2 verse 5 says, Now there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under the sky, or some translations put it, every nation under heaven. And verse 9 mentions Parthia as the furthest nation. Is he really saying that there were Jews that came from North and South America or from Australia? No, it's talking about the known world. Jeremiah chapter 51 verse 25 says about the king of Babylon, Behold, I am against you, destroying mountains, says Yahweh, which destroys all the earth. And Nebuchadnezzar's empire did not destroy the whole earth, but they did rule the world of the people in those days. And then Genesis chapter 6 verse 17 says, I, even I, do bring the flood of the waters on this earth to destroy all flesh having the breath of life from under the sky. Everything that is in the earth will die. So the earth or land... Genesis chapter 7 verse 4 says, Everything living thing that I have made I will destroy from the surface of the ground. So the terminology in the Bible does not support a worldwide flood. It's inconsistent when creationists insist that the verses mentioned first are not talking about the whole earth, but then they say Genesis 6 to 8 is talking about the whole earth. And one reason I got from them is, well, look at all the geological evidence that the creationists talk about. And to which I say, well, that's junk science. And they say, yeah, but it had to have been a worldwide flood because it says it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And I said, well, if it had rained for 40 days and 40 nights, it would have emptied some of the ocean. So it only there's not enough water to flood the whole earth. In the Ark Encounter, Ken Ham claims that there were 7,000 animals aboard the Ark. And there were eight people had 850 animals to look after each day. You see, creationists claim that the flood covered the whole earth 
and all animals that are alive today are descended from animals that got off the ark. So, therefore, all the species of animal in the world today had to be aboard that ark. And since there were eight people that had to look after 850 animals each day, that would be one animal per minute if they were to work a 14-hour day. And they also had to shuffle all the poop of the animals from the lower decks and throw it out of the ark. They would have had a hellish amount of work to do. How did they carry tons of poop out of the ark and dump it in the ocean? How did they feed them? How did they store it all? If you believe in a localised flood, you don't have that same problem. And was it a worldwide flood that was ended by geological activity? Well, I like to quote Psalm 104 in reference to the to geological activity, but that's not talking about Noah's flood. That's talking about Genesis chapter 1, when the earth was formed at the very beginning. He laid the foundations of the earth that it should not be moved forever. And that's actually telling the opposite. If they were if the foundations of the earth were set, then there was no movement in the flood. But the scripture there is talking poetically anyway. It's not uh, telling us about geology. Was it a worldwide flood that was ended by geological activity? Well, there were flood survivors. The Nephilim were mentioned in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, before the flood. Then we read about their descendants in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, which says, There we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from, who came of the Nephilim. And Genesis chapter 8, verse 1 says, The flood was dissipated by a great wind. Genesis 8, 1, God made a wind to pass over the earth. The waters subsided. If there was a worldwide flood, you wouldn't be able to stop it with a wind. Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 to 5, tells us that the waters were receding. Genesis chapter 8, verse 5 says, The waters receded continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So, Genesis chapter 8, verse 5, is telling us that the water was receding, and we could see the tops of the mountains. Now, let's compare this four verses later at verse 9. It says, But the dove found no place to rest her foot, and she returned to him into the ark, for the waters were on the surface of the whole earth. 
Now in verse 9, it says the waters were on the whole earth, but verse 5 tells us that the mountains could be seen. So when Genesis 6 to 8 talks about the water being on the whole earth, it doesn't mean on the top of every mountain or everywhere. What needs to be recognised is that Mesopotamia is at very low altitude and it has a lot of flooding. And that was the area that got flooded. And in Genesis chapter 8 verse 11, Noah's dove found an olive leaf and olive trees do not survive at high altitude. So the flood waters could not have been that high. As mentioned before, there is not enough water to flood the whole earth. 0.1% of earth's volume is water. Yes, it does cover 71% of our surface, but we have less than a quarter the amount of water needed to flood the whole earth. And in Genesis chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, it mentions many places, the land of Havilah, the Pishon River, the Gihon River, the land of Cush, the Hidekel River of Assyria, and the Euphrates River. Now these places existed before the flood, and they existed after the flood. So there was no great catastrophic change to the tectonics of the earth, as these creationists claim. Also, a rectangular-shaped arc would have survived a large flood, but it would not survive the high seas of a global flood, like a ship on the ocean. It would have been broken to pieces. The Mesopotamian Valley was the known world to Noah and his people. That was, And it was God's judgment on people. So if Antarctica or Siberia was not inhabited at the time, God would not have needed to flood Antarctica or Siberia. We don't know how long ago Noah lived but I believe it was probably many tens of thousands of years before Abraham's time. Genesis chapter 10 lists ten generations between Noah and Abraham. Luke chapter 3, on the other hand, lists eleven generations between Noah and Abraham. The Jewish genealogies are not complete. The word for father of can mean grandfather, great-grandfather or long-distant ancestor and the word for son can mean grandson or great-grandson or long-distant descendant and that thought is used in, in Matthew chapter 1 where it says the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
King David lived a thousand years before Jesus. And Abraham lived about a thousand years before David. They weren't uh, three generations, they were many generations. So you can't use the genealogies of the Bible to calculate the age of the earth. But we simply don't know. Now, another rather dumb argument that creationists use to argue that it was a worldwide flood is they point out that there are many different cultures and traditions around the world that mention uh, a flood tradition, such as Hawaii. And therefore the argument is Hawaii must have been flooded. Well, if that was true then whoever was living in Hawaii at the time would have been killed in the flood. So, and also some of these flood legends have nothing in common with the Bible one. It's very much fallacious thinking. However, if you believe in a localised flood there would have been enough room to fit all the local animals, enough time for eight people to look after them. There would have been no problems with geology. You'd have the same places named before and after the flood, such as those mentioned in Genesis chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. And Mesopotamia is an area of frequent flooding. There was a great flood there in 2900 B.C., and there are flood legends such as the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Sumerian King Lists mentions the Great Flood. But now we get to the scientific evidence for the flood. Is there any scientific evidence to support a worldwide flood? And creationists will say there's marine life fossils on mountaintops. To which we say, yes, that mountaintop was once underwater. And that's because of plate tectonic activity. But see, it's taken tens of millions of years for this to happen. It's like, for example, if scientists were to find a way of determining if all my cutlery and crockery has been in my kitchen sink, has been underwater, and they would prove it, and I would say, yes, it's all been in my kitchen sink at one time. And then the scientist, who's a creationist, would say, aha, this proves that all your crockery and cutlery has been in that sink underwater at the same time. To which I would say, no, there's not enough room to fit it, but they've all been underwater at different times. Well, the geological acti evidence and activity in the world doesn't fit the creationist claims. There are many animal species that are confined to separate parts of the world. We have marsupials that are native to Australia and South America. In fact, South America millions of years ago was thriving with marsupials and when North America collided... The placentals drove many of these marsupials to extinction. 
But because Australia was separate, marsupials were able to thrive. However, when the dingo got introduced to Australia, it drove the thylacine, a similar shaped animal, to extinction. Then there's animals like the koala that lives off eucalyptus leaves and lives in Australia. How did Noah get it all the way from Australia to Mesopotamia? And how did it get its way back to Australia? There's other animals like the dodo of Mauritius, which is extinct, but they were very vulnerable to predation because they didn't have any predators in Mauritius. And then there's some animals that live in very cold climates, like emperor penguins in Antarctica. How did they get aboard the ark? Did they swim across the ocean? Or were they native to Mesopotamia, sharing the same land mass with lions and tigers, and they just made their way across to Australia? There's no answers they really give. There's nothing practical they give unless you appeal to the miraculous and the supernatural. Secondly, how did all the animals fit aboard the ark? How did eight people feed them all? And we've looked at the mammoth task, no pun intended, they would have gone to to do it. Did plate tectonics end a worldwide flood? Well, they like to tell us that there's millions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. If you had a flood, you'd have dead things buried under one rock layer. You wouldn't have multiple rock layers. There's far too many fossilised animals in all the rock strata to fit on this planet if they were all killed in this one worldwide flood. The Karoo Formation in Africa has about 800 billion animals, it's believed. The Russian Arctic investigation found about half a million tonnes of mammoth tusks. And why are there so many aquatic animals found? And a good article to read is the Talk Origins Archive called Problems with a Global Flood. And there they look at these practical problems they've got on their on their uh, agenda to deal with plate tectonics move about one to ten centimeters per year and mount everest moves about eight sorry four millimeters per year and they have rapid geological movement by plate tectonics would have emitted enough heat to evaporate all the water on the earth and it would have cooked Noah and all the animals aboard the ark. Ian Plymer, in his 1988 debate with Dwayne Gish, pointed this out. He wrote a book called Telling Lies for God and he wrote a chapter called A Great Flood of Absurdities. And he said the continents would need to have moved four kilometres a year. And this would cause a worldwide catastrophic earthquake once every six minutes. A catastrophic volcano once every 12 minutes. 
perpetual darkness and we would have had constant nuclear winter since the Great Flood. And every 18 minutes a tidal wave of boiling water would come across them. So it's not possible for humans to survive in those conditions. And furthermore, why would God bring about such horrors after he'd already passed his judgment with the flood and said he'd never bring a massive disaster like that again? It does a lot of violence to scripture. And why isn't it written about in scripture? Well, as Ian Plymer said, Every uh, they'd, someone had sit down to write about what had just happened, and then six minutes later there'd be a, a catastrophic earthquake. Then another six minutes after that, a catastrophic volcano, and then twelve uh, six minutes after that there'd be a tidal wave of boiling water that would go over them, and it. And Genesis 8.22 refers to a return to normalcy, seed time and harvest, cold and heat. And and some creationists still argue, and they used to in the 1980s, that there was a vapour canopy that covered the earth, and that would have had a greenhouse effect like Venus. It would have been boiling hot and people would have been killed. So that, my friends is why we should reject a worldwide flood. The Bible does not require us to believe it covered the entire planet, and the scientific evidence makes a complete mockery of the creationist theories. So I think it should be abandoned, and it's we can still believe there was a flood, and there was a literal Noah and a literal ark, that was built, it destroyed Noah's world of Mesopotamia and it preserved Noah. And the question is though, why would God get him to build an ark if it wasn't a worldwide flood? Why wouldn't he get him to just leave? And Hugh Ross, who's written about that in his book The Genesis Question, he says, because an an ark, would serve as a pulpit. People would ask him, what are you building? And he'd say, God's going to judge this land. And so that was his witness as a prophet of God. A Christian debunks creationism by Paul Martin, read by the author. Copyright 2019, Paul Martin's Fine Films and Audiobooks. Chapter 7. Creationism, who it hurts. Creationism is all about the logical fallacy of the faulty dilemma. They say that you've either got to choose between atheistic naturalism or young earth creationism. And as far as they're concerned, there's no middle ground. No other alternative. If you're a theistic evolutionist like myself, then you're considered an idiot and a fool and a servant of the devil. And Richard Dawkins and other atheists that hate and despise all forms of religion actually have the same attitude. Richard Dawkins 
utterly reviles and despises any evolutionist to believe in God. Which is curious because science doesn't tell us whether or not there is God. What does that have to do with science? Science can't tell us about the supernatural because it's about studying the natural, what we can test in a laboratory, what we can dig up from the Grand Canyon. But this logical fallacy of the faulty dilemma where you can only choose two options usually two extreme opposite options, is common. I remember as a kid, in our family, we were subscribed to Creation Ex Nihilo, their rather shameless propaganda magazine. And back then, I was a convinced creationist, but I still cringed at a photo they had of evolution versus creation, and it was a photo of two cowboys with their backs to each other and their guns drawn, ready for a duel. In other words, it's one side must kill the other. So it's a choice between God or science. You can't have both. It's one or the other. In the USA today, July the 14th, 2017 article, they noted how creationism supporters of the, is it a low in regard to Ken Ham's Ark Encounter. But they did studies in a survey and they found that an increasing number of people in America were accepting evolution while still maintaining faith in God. In other words, they don't have to choose between one extreme or the other, but people like Ken Ham and Richard Dawkins want us to think that you do have to choose one. Evolution does not disprove or prove God's existence. It simply proves Evolution's existence. Evolution is about science. God is about faith. There are logical reasons for believing in science. And there are different reasons, but also logical reasons, to believe in God, such as the fact that we have a conscience, the fact that we have an awareness of God, the fact that we distinguish between good and evil and the fact that the whole universe had to have a beginning and if it had a beginning then logically it had a beginner. I've heard atheists come up with some crazy and laughable ideas like maybe we're all part of some experiment in the basement of some teenage alien Well, for that to be the case, that teenage alien would have to be over 14 billion years old in order to have initiated the Big Bang. And could a finite alien creature like that do something like that? Interestingly, in the debate, the 1988 debate between Ian Plymer and Dwayne Gish, Ian Plymer 
record studies of Christian children, often homeschooled or from devoutly Christian homes, who were told they had to choose between evolution and Christianity. In other words, they had to choose to be Christians who believed in young earth creationism or atheists who believed in evolution. And he found that most of the children, when they were confronted with that one or the other choice, they actually chose atheism. And that made me very angry and very upset, and it dawned on me how destructive creationism is. Because as Ian Plymer, who is very pro-Christian and pro-church, said creationism turns Christian children into atheists and it promotes heresy and it promotes pseudoscience and absurdities. And that's the difference between two great evangelists of the 20th century, Billy Graham and Charles Templeton. They were both devout Christians. They were both devout preachers. And they both believed that God had created everything in the beginning. But Charles Templeton came to the conclusion that you have to choose between creationism or atheism or agnosticism. And he became an agnostic, a godless man, because he believed you had to take Genesis 1 and 2 literally. Billy Graham, in contrast, as I quoted before, said that whether man was specially created or whether he had evolved is not the most important thing. The most important thing is what man is and man's relationship with God. So Charles Templeton believed you had to choose one or the other, whereas Billy Graham believed you could believe both. And Billy Graham died at the age of 99, faithful and devout as ever. Charles Templeton, sadly, died as an agnostic, and he wrote a book called Farewell to God. Creationism stifles scientific inquiry Science is vital for survival and for our way of life. It's because of science that so many viruses and diseases have been cured. It is because of science that we have genetically modified foods to feed the world's increasing bulging population. And what creationism and other forms of pseudoscience do is they stifle the public trust in science. And this may account for the widespread growth of the flat earth movement, as well as climate change deniers, people who say that the moon landing was a hoax, and other wacky conspiracy theories. And so we need science, my friends. We need it to fight diseases and cure diseases. We need it to feed the world population. 
We need it to create environmentally friendly technologies that put less carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, less plastic in the ocean. We need to return to space. There was a big talk of advancing into the space age in the 1960s and 70s and even into the 80s. But it's died down a bit. It's only in the last couple of years that people of the world have become more excited about advancing back into the space age and returning to the moon. We need science to understand human health and global health. And we also need it, especially biology, an evolutionary understanding of genetics to prevent animal extinctions. And just because there's millions more environmentalists of today than ever before doesn't change the fact that we are in the midst of a mass extinction of many species. God put us on this earth to look after it responsibly in Genesis chapter 1, in the very first book of the Bible. And in the very last book of the Bible, in Revelation, God says, I will destroy those who destroy the earth. Creationists, however, reject all science in general, except whatever they can use to discredit evolution and the age of the earth. You see, they never attempt to prove creationism, apart from saying, ah, the Bible says so, when it doesn't really. They don't attempt to prove creationism. They merely try to discredit evolution while not applying that same scrutiny to creationism. Their aim is to argue that neither creation nor evolution can be proven by science so that they can pretend there's some sort of a level playing field. And so now we're going to look at some of the most famous creationists who started this movement. The first one was a Seventh-day Adventist, and his name was George McCready Price. He lived from 1870 to 1963, and he was a Seventh-day Adventist. The SDAs are notorious for coming up with crazy and unbiblical and unsound ideas. They were the people who predicted that in 1844 Jesus was going to return, and when it didn't happen, Ellen G. White, their prophetess, said, ah, well, uh, Jesus did come back in 1844, but he came back for a secret investigative judgment. And she also said that going to church on Sunday was the mark of the beast and other wacky ideas. George McCready Price argued for flood geology, and it was not taken seriously by anyone during his lifetime. It was a notoriously inaccurate and unscientific book, and it rejected all forms of creationism as of old earth creationism, as a compromise with Satan. So anyone who believed there was a gap of time between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, or that the days represented long ages, was a compromiser of the 
devil. And some of the ideas by other anti-evolutionists were not taken that seriously. There was an old earth creationist called Harry Rimmer, and he, in his book, despite being an old earth creationist, was vehemently against evolution, and his book convinced Henry Morris to go against evolution. Now, Henry Morris was a hydraulic engineer. He had a PhD in hydraulic engineering that he got in 1950. And with one John Whitcomb, he wrote a book called The Genesis Flood, which was done in 1961. And he also wrote a book called The Genesis Record in 1976, which was a commentary of Genesis. And it was an embarrassingly terrible commentary of the Bible. I did five years of theological studies. And I can tell you that his commentary of Genesis was probably the shoddiest and most disgraceful excuse for a Bible commentary that I've ever seen. He, was in, he had an embarrassingly poor understanding of both theology and science. All the science that's in that Bible commentary is completely out of date. And even when he wrote it, it was basically pseudoscience. And he was a staunch believer in the King James Bible's text, the Masoretic Hebrew for the Old Testament, and the Textus Receptus for the Greek. Now, most listeners are not going to have a clue what I'm talking about, but I want you to bear with me because this is an example of how unscholarly and terrible he was in his understanding. The Masoretic text is a Hebrew text that was not completed until the 10th century. That's right, my friends, the 10th century. That's about 1,400 years after the last book of the Old Testament in their Hebrew Jewish canon had been written, the book of Malachi. And the Jewish Masoretic text omitted a lot of things. It omitted entire books such as Tobit, Judith and Maccabees. It also had a greatly redacted version of Esther and Daniel. And it's not considered a very scholarly text. A much more reliable one was the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation, but it is a complete translation of the Old Testament. And the New Testament text, the Textus Receptus, it was made up of six medieval manuscripts that were put together by a Catholic priest by the name of Desiderius Erasmus in the early 1500s. Now, in the five centuries since that time, they found many, many earlier manuscripts and more complete manuscripts than these. So the Masoretic Hebrew and the Textus Receptus are completely out of date, more than 500 years out of date, and they're shoddy examples of scripture, but Henry Morris believed that these were the best scriptural texts. 
He also believed that Isaiah chapter 14 verse 12, which refers to Lucifer, is talking about Satan. And virtually all Bible scholars know that that is not referring to Satan. It's referring to the king of Babylon. It's referring to a human man with a carcass who is going to die a physical death, if you read the whole text on that scripture. But it's an example of how shockingly shoddy and unscholarly his understanding of theology and science was. He also had a racist attitude towards the descendants of Ham in his book, The Beginning of the World, published in 1991, pages 147 to 148, where he talks about how uh, inferior the descendants of Ham were and how they suffered a lot of bad luck. And this Genesis record, this disgraceful commentary, were told in a brochure by the creationists when they advertised that book that this is the book that Ken Ham (laughs) cut his teeth on. Give me a break. This is where Ken Ham built his foundation on, a shoddy book like that. And Henry Morris said a lot of other bizarre things. He said that Satan was the first evolutionist. He said that the Bible is the only way to know the age of the earth. Now let's think about that. He was a man who had a PhD in hydraulic engineering. In other words, he got a PhD, told them what they wanted to hear, but he completely rejected and disregarded everything in his PhD. And he believes that if you believe the earth is millions of years old, it will lead to you becoming sexually immoral. The thing about creationists, my friends, is they make massive revenue from books, magazines, periodicals, donations, free volunteer labour, and very expensive camps and seminars. An example of that was back in the 1990s. Our family went to a nearby Presbyterian church because the creationist, Peter Sparrow, was visiting. And he and his wife went around in a large bus with the creation thing painted all over it. He spent about 20 minutes talking to the audience about problems with evolution And then he spent almost 45 minutes selling, doing a salesman's pitch for books and why you should buy them. And he wouldn't give us any of the vital information. He'd say, this book here will tell you how to debunk whale evolution. And this book here will explain to you where Cain got his wife. And I explained that to a girl once and her jaw just dropped. And afterwards, when we were talking among ourselves, we said, you know, we agree with creationism and we're so grateful he's doing what he's doing, but boy, he seemed dead set on just selling books to us. 
And what it is, is the livelihood to most of these so-called creationists. Now, this is not an exhaustive look at all the creationists out there, but it's just a look at a few to give an idea of what kind of people they are. The next man I'm going to look at is Ken Ham. Ken Ham got a Bachelor of Applied Science in 1975 and a Diploma in Education, so he would teach science to high school students. He's a man who's had a history of feuding and power struggles and lawsuits with other creationists and always with marked splits in their organisation. He used to work with another crank by the name of John Mackay, and John Mackay exposed a scam going on in Answers in Genesis where they basically told everyone out there who was a creationist that wanted to publish a book that if you pay us a large sum of money, we will review your book and give it a good review. But if you don't, we'll give it a bad review. And John Mackay was very upset that they were doing that to him. He saw it as extortion and manipulation. Uh, Ken Ham moved to Australia, from Australia to the USA in 1987 because he has, it has ten times, more than ten times as many people in the United States as Australia. And he thinks of himself <laughs> as alone <laughs> to the United States, which is a pretty inflated uh, belief in himself. He started a creation museum in 2007, and in 2016, he made a replica of Noah's Ark and an amusement park, with a, which I guess amusement is the key word. The Ark Encounter has a net worth of about $48 million. And the major media reported that he actually sold this Ark Encounter worth $48 million to himself for $10. And that comes from an article on news.com.au, September the 6th, 2017. The article is Ken Ham's life-size Noah's Ark theme park, a sinking ship. His ministry does not seriously engage in scientific studies and research, they just do theme parks and museum entertainment for a high price. They do childish cartoons and childish straw man arguments against evolution, basically equating it with atheism. Because he knows he's got a core group of supporters. He's got them where he wants them. So he doesn't care if 90% of the population mock and ridicule him, if 10% of the population buy his books and pay for tickets to his Ark Encounter, 
and he's got a very successful money-making business going. I saw an example of that once at a creationist stall at a Christian convention. They had the books for sale with volunteers spending many hours sitting and selling books and they were playing a video of Ken Ham talking about the Tyrannosaurus Rex and he was showing that the Tyrannosaurus Rex was a vegetarian that would eat a certain type of fruit with a very, very tough seed that only the T-Rex could crack. And these two old ladies were trying not to laugh their heads off at this video. And I looked at the guy at the selling the creationist literature and he looked very embarrassed. But what baffled me the most was how Ken Ham could sit there with a straight face and talk about the vegetarian T-Rex. I remember reading a review by one woman who was a homeschooler, devout Christian, and she went to buy some creationist literature and she said she opened up one of Ken Ham's books that had a cartoonish picture of Adam riding on the back of a dinosaur. And she said, I couldn't stop laughing. I slammed the book shut and thought, I'm not going to teach that rubbish to my children. So she went and bought some of Hugh Ross's old earth creationist stuff because she felt it took science and the world around us more seriously. And he holds six degrees. But wait on just a minute. These are six fake honorary degrees, doctorates from unaccredited institutions, including a doctorate in divinity. This is a guy who got himself only a bachelor degree in the 1970s and has done nothing serious to increase his scientific information. And his Ark Encounter, I actually admired him initially when I saw that he'd built a replica of the Ark, despite my disagreement with his beliefs. But after I looked at all the, the scams that seemed to be involved, he threatened to sue the government of Kentucky. And they ended up giving him a large tax break on the basis that his amusement park would attract lots and lots of tourists who would then bring business to the small town nearby, to Williamstown. But so far, in the several years since it's been built, it hasn't done much to help that town economically. And there are a lot of reports in the media, I'm not saying they're necessarily correct, but they seem to show strong evidence that the Ark Encounter is not doing very well and they may not even break even with the $100 million they spent building it. My honest prediction is that it will probably eventually go bust and it will end up being acquired by 
the government of T Kentucky, and they will enhance it with lots of other water slides and other rides to try and make it into make something out of it. But a thing I do notice about America that seems to be unique for that country is that it is littered. It's littered with abandoned amusement parks. So will it happen to that? I don't know. The next guy to look at is uh, even more scandalous in many ways, and that's Kent Hovind, although his net worth is nowhere near as great as Ken Ham's. Ken Ham would be worth well over $50 million. I don't know if he'd quite be $100 million, but owning the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter, that would be quite a lot of money to make out of pseudoscience. A lot more money than any astrologer or water diviner could make. But back to Kent Hovind. Kent Hovind got a fake PhD from a diploma mill. It's called the Patriot University. And all it is, is a tin shed on a hill. And his PhD was found through WikiLeaks, and it can be read. The Flesh Reading Ease, which is a program that determines the standard of literature written, determined that his PhD was the standard of a 13 to 15 year old would write or read. His PhD opens with him saying, Hi, my name's Kent Hovind. I mean, this is supposed to be a science uh, dissertation. And a few pages later, he talks about how Satan was responsible for evolution. He ended up spending nine years in prison because he was selling millions of dollars in merchandise and he was earning about 50 thousand dollars a year in speaking engagements but but he refused to pay taxes so he got nine years in prison his wife joe got one year in prison and two years into his prison sentence his wife joe and his son eric eric hovind stopped visiting him and they stopped writing to him, which is a pretty despicable thing to do to your own family. And while he was in prison, his son, Eric Hovind, with the consent and help of the mother, appropriated his father's mini theme park, Now, Eric Hovind, who has no theological or scientific academic qualifications, started his own ministries called God Quest Ministries, and he seized his father's dinosaur adventure land and still kept appealing for money 
and he asked for hundreds of thousands of dollars to produce a film called Genesis 3D. And then he bought his father's assets with the help of the mother that was worth $2 million. He bought it for $6,300 to himself. And he conspired with Kent Hovind's wife. And nine years after the prison sentence, Kent Hovind arrived home. There were 500 people there that celebrated his release from prison. And after the party had finished and the guests gone, Kent Hovind says his wife walked him to a separate room and says, by the way, this is where you'll be sleeping. And she was not sleeping with him. So he was under house arrest to spend the rest of his sentence in his own house and they forced him to pay $600 a month to live in his own house. And that, my friends, is who Eric Hovind is. Utterly despicable. And Kent Hovind was, prior to his arrest, was earning over millions of dollars. He also believes a lot of crazy conspiracy theories. Kent believes in the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. It's an anti-Jewish conspiracy theory that claims that the Jews are doing all these evil things, including the invention of the theory of evolution. That Maybe that was what got his interest with it. And he's also a King James-only fanatic who thinks that the King James... Bible, which, as I mentioned before, is based on the unreliable Masoretic and Textus Receptus texts, is the best Bible to use. He also used even arguments that creationists no longer use. And uh, Stephen Myers, a theistic evolutionist, critiqued him. He had some unscientific old wives' tales. He said that humans only use 10% of their brain. And Stephen Myers from the Institute of Biblical and Scientific Studies responded and said, well, maybe Kent Hovind only uses 10% of his brain, but neurological studies have shown that humans pretty much use all that's there. And he also would say, the whiter the bread, the quicker you're dead. And he had a standing offer of $250,000 for anyone who could prove evolution. Now, if he was an ethical man of his word, he would have a neutral organisation that would determine if someone had proven evolution and then would obligate him to pay it. But no, it was on his terms and he was great at obfuscation and dodging the issues. Another rather hilarious creationist out there is Ray Comfort. He's a street evangelist, he's a New Zealander and he did this cringe-worthy video with the actor Kirk Cameron where he held up a banana and he said that a banana was an evolutionist's worst nightmare. 
because he said it fits nice and smooth into your hands and it doesn't squirt out all over your face and all this silly nonsense. And he ended up being called to account and corrected. He, he got It was pointed out to him that bananas, as we know them, have been cultivated that way by humans. That's why they fit perfectly in your hand. And he's tried to get a debate with Richard Dawkins, but Richard Dawkins has just laughed at him. And then there, one particular scientist that creationists love to appeal to is Sir Isaac Newton. And when Ian Plymer debated, there was someone who said, well, you know... What about Isaac Newton? He was a brilliant scientist and a creationist. And Ian Plymer responded, yes, he was a brilliant scientist and a creationist, and he also lived 300 years ago. And a lot of scientific discoveries have been made in the last 300 years. I don't know why creationists love to appeal to Isaac Newton. If you have to appeal to a man who lived in the 16 and 1700s, who was brilliant for his time. But science has also advanced since then. Isaac Newton was not their definition of a Christian in any case. He did not believe that the whole of Scripture was God's word. He believed just the early chapters were. Isaac Newton as well rejected the Trinity and he rejected the deity of Christ. He was a Unitarian. And Isaac Newton was not one of them, but they loved to distort facts. And Isaac Newton may have believed in a young earth, but he admitted in a letter to a friend that there were many other Christians in his day who interpreted the Bible to appeal to long ages. And this was long before uniformitarianism was widely known or believed. A Christian Debunks Creationism by Paul Martin, read by the author, copyright 2019, Paul Martin's Fine Films and Audio Books. Chapter 8. Is There Life in Outer Space? A few years ago, I was talking to a man about the possibility of life in outer space and he was a fundamentalist Christian and he gave me a look of utter disgust and he then started chuckling and he said, people who think there's life in outer space are a bit stupid. And I said, why do you say that? And he said, because Venus is too hot for life, and Mars is too cold for life. And I said, so what? That would just prove there's no life on Mars and Venus. How does that prove that there's no life in the rest of the universe, the rest of our galaxy, in far-off distant galaxies? And he just sort of looked at me confused, like it had gone right over his head. I met another Christian girl and I talked to her about the possibility of life on other planets and she went wide-eyed and said, no, 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 there's no life in outer space. God wouldn't allow it. And I looked at her dumbfounded because I thought, 
What does the Bible say? It doesn't say anything for or against life on other worlds. And I met other Christians who are just very fired up and vehemently against the idea of there being life out there. I don't know why. And it actually comes from creationism. The young earth creationists, people like Ken Ham, he did on Twitter, he said, real alien data will never exist because aliens aren't real. I thought, wow, you know this how. See, in order to know that there's no life in outer space, you'd need to fly a spaceship over every single planet in the universe. And of course that can't be done. So it will be impossible to ever prove that there's no life out there. But to prove that there is life out there, so far we don't know. As a teenager, I was very keenly interested in the UFO phenomenon and I read a lot of stories, a lot of anecdotes. Some of them were very hard to explain. Others were obviously the case of people who had smoked pot or suffered from delusions and a mental illness. And so far, no real evidence from UFO reports have proven convincing. In fact, it could be that every single one of these reports is a hoax. But even if every single one of them was debunked, it would have no bearing or proof on whether or not there is life in outer space. It would simply prove that, as far as we know so far, life in outer space hasn't reached us. That's all it would prove. And even if there are no other aliens or sentient beings out there, there may be other microscopic or simple forms of life on other planets. We simply don't know. But Ken Ham's belief is that a good God would not allow aliens to exist on other planets because then they would have to have faith in Jesus, without which they would burn in hell. Which is a bit silly because if... God could send his son, Jesus, to planet Earth to reveal who he is to us. There's no reason why he wouldn't do the same thing to any other planet where he created sentient beings to have a relationship with himself. There is also people who believe that the planet Earth is at a very, very precise position and that no life could exist anywhere else. I remember being told years ago that if the Earth was just a few degrees closer to the sun, we would burn up, and if we were a few degrees further away, we would freeze. This is actually garbage. This is old school, which has been debunked. In more recent years, they've found that the Earth could be about halfway to Venus or as far off as Mars and still harbour life. 
and our temperature would not be significantly affected by that. But what does the Bible actually say about life forms? Well, it doesn't actually say anything. It doesn't say if there are life forms or not. So I think we ought not to dogmatically claim that there is or is not life in outer space until we have evidence. However, there is one trait about God, I notice, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. And Genesis chapter 1 tells us that the earth was formless and void or empty and God wanted it filled. So my question is, does God want these trillions and trillions of planets in our universe to all be empty or does he want them filled? Arthur C. Clarke, the astronomer, said, Sometimes I think we're alone in the universe, and sometimes I think we're not. In either case, the idea is quite staggering. But could life forms exist anywhere else in the universe? Could there be life forms on Mars or Venus Could there be life forms on some of the moons of Jupiter and Saturn? And do we have proof that life forms could exist? So far we don't have any proof that there are life forms in these other planets and moons, but could some life forms live in a hostile environment like those planets? And the answer is yes. We know this because there are many life forms on Earth that live in extreme environments and they're called extremophiles. And we have acidophiles such as the Mucha racemosus, which is a mould, and we have acidobacteria, thermoplasmatales. These are small microscopic creatures that live in acid. We have thermophiles that survive in hot springs of boiling water. They also exist in hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean and at the deep sea, which is like 1,500 metres, one and a half kilometres below the surface of the ocean, it has thousands of times more high pressure on an animal living down there as we do. So you'd think no life could possibly exist at the bottom of the ocean, but there are thousands of different species thriving at the bottom of the ocean with hardly any light, with enormous pressure, and great cold, and yet they're thriving there. And so these animals have simply evolved to live in these hostile environments. 
And the term hostile or extreme environments is actually a relative term. It's extreme from our perspective. But from these animals' perspective, where we live is probably extreme. Then we have methane-based animals, such as a mussel species that relies on methane to make energy in the North Atlantic Ocean at a cold seep. And I say this because Saturn has a moon called Titan, and that is a methanosphere. It has methane, oceans of methane, in fact. It would probably stink terribly if you visited there. But could there be life? Well, it's possible, but I know that some forms of life from Earth could survive in an environment like that. And is there life in outer space? Yes, there is. Now, some of the listeners are probably thinking, say what? I'll explain. The International Space Station has astronauts. Okay, that was a bad joke, but now getting serious. The International Space Station has life forms that they've put outside of the space station where they're exposed to the blackness of space, to the, well, not to the elements, just to space. And these life forms include lichen and fungi and other forms of bacteria And they've put them outside the space station where they have intense ultraviolet radiation, extreme temperature variations. And these bacteria, algae, lichen and fungi, at the time of this report, which was March the 27th, 2019, from Science Alert, the article was entitled Strange Earth Organisms, have somehow survived living outside the ISS. And at the time that this report was made, these life forms had been living for 533 days of survival outside of the space station. So there you are. Some life forms could even survive floating on meteorites and rocks from planet to planet or across space. They've also found Martian meteorites that have landed on Earth from a, or landed in places like Antarctica and they have fossils of what might be a life form. But we don't have enough information to be presumptuous. We can't be like Ken Ham because in science we need evidence. And since there is no absolute certainty of life, so far we can't say that there is. But we are starting to get closer and closer to hints that there could be life. There was the WOW signal in 1977, and it was a radio signal that was sent to Earth for 72 seconds. And 
people have not been able so far to explain it away as a natural phenomenon, and it may have been an intelligent alien civilization contacting us. But if there is life in outer space, the question is, will it reach Earth? And it's a sobering thought to think that the planet Earth had two civilizations that did space travel, the United States and the Soviet Union, and in the 20th century those two nations almost wiped each other out through a nuclear war. Now, in many other planets around the universe, if there is civilization, will they last long enough to survive? And that's something to think about. If there is life in outer space, it may never reach us. But nevertheless, it could well be there. When I was a kid in the 1980s, it was not known for sure if there were any planets outside of our own solar system. Today, there are many thousands of them known. They're called exoplanets. And there are thousands more that are candidates. There is possibly billions of Earth-like planets in the Milky Way galaxy alone. We already know of thousands of exoplanets and the same debris left from the Big Bang means that other stars will have planets like us. A Christian Debunks Creationism by Paul Martin Read by the author Copyright 2019, Paul Martin's Fine Films and Audiobooks. Chapter 9. Is Climate Change a Hoax? Is global warming or climate change a hoax invented by alarmists or is it a reality? And while this, strictly speaking, is not really about creationism, I've included it because creationists, the vast majority of them, are climate change deniers. And they love to quote one Bible verse out of context, Genesis chapter 8, verse 22, which says, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night, shall not cease. Well, no matter how hot the earth gets, there will always be cool places. The planet Mercury, for example, has cold polar caps. That doesn't mean the planet Mercury is habitable, but it does have cold and heat. The Earth will get several degrees hotter if we continue with carbon emissions, and there'll still be winter and summer, but winter will be warmer than it normally is. So is it cause for alarm? I think a lot of people like to deny it because it's comforting not to have to worry about it and because I think they also despise some of the extreme left-wing environmentalists. 
so they like to sort of stuff it to them. But that has no bearing on whether global warming is true or not. They think that humans couldn't do something like that. And I submit, well, humans have done incredible damage to this planet. We put a hole in the ozone layer, which some scientists think is healing and others believe is not. We have air pollution and massive smog in many cities around the world. I remember watching a news report of a city in China where they hadn't had proper sunlight for about a year because of the amount of smog. And there are even cases of acid rain in industrial parts of the world. And then we have nuclear disasters like Chernobyl in 1986 or Fukushima in Japan in 2011. Not to mention nuclear testing where the damage is said to last for tens of thousands of years. And humans have also driven many species of animal to extinction. And yet some people still claim that it's not possible for humans to do such damage as make our temperature rise by several degrees Celsius by the end of the 21st century. Well, roughly 55% of the public in the Western world think that climate change is a hoax and about 45% believe it's a reality. Whereas with the scientific community, it's quite different. It's something like 97% of scientists believe it's reality. Scientists are not people who believe in conspiracies together. They're very fiercely independent, individualistic men and women. And they don't like to believe something until they see the clear evidence. And to get 97% of scientists to agree on climate change and 98.5% of them to agree on evolution, that can only happen when there is overwhelming, compelling evidence. And I explained that to one woman on social media. But she kept saying, what about the 3% that don't? Explain that. And I said, well, I've shown you 97% that do, but you want me to explain the 3% who are sceptics. And I said, fine, I'll explain them. I'll humour her. So I explained that the 3%, that's because some scientists are just sceptical by nature and they simply won't believe something unless they're a million percent sure that it's true. Or it can be because climate and earth science is not their area of expertise, so they haven't studied it much to form an opinion. Also, there is an element of scientists who are in the employment of mining, oil and gas companies and their livelihood, their paycheck, is dependent on this company doing what they're doing to the environment. It's a fact that more people die from heat-related illnesses than any other natural disasters. 
So how do climate deniers succeed in fooling people? Well, they use journalists. They'll use people with a PhD in English literature or bloggers or conspiracy nutjobs to go and say that climate change is a hoax. People that are not at all qualified to talk about that. There's a journalist in Australia called Andrew Bolt who's a very prominent climate change denier and he is an absolutely brilliant journalist. He knows a hell of a lot about journalism, more than I'll ever know, but he doesn't know diddly squat about science and he should shut his mouth. He, he doesn't know, and, but he's like so many other journalists and other people who think they've got something to say and they want to stand up on their soapbox and display their ignorance of science. Another tactic they use is they quote mine science journals. They quote things out of context. And then another thing they do is they discredit climate change by using alarmist or exaggerated predictions by individual scientists who have written something sensational and they've used that to discredit science in general. But it's a fact of physics that carbon is a warmer substance than oxygen. And they, they'll point out and they'll say things like, ah, oh, but there's so much air pollution caused by volcanoes and that's natural. To which I say, yes, it is natural, but see, humans have been responsible for so many carbon emissions that they've doubled the amount of carbon in our atmosphere. And that's why I say, Houston, we have a problem. Another problem is they reject the evidence and it's comforting, as I've said, to not to have to worry about a problem like this. A good place that gives a lot of evidence is NASA. NASA's climate.nasa.gov talks a lot about it and they're a pretty highly reputable science institute. And according to the Global Land Ocean Temperature Index, it shows an overall trend line of rising temperature and it's gotten especially sharp since the 1960s. There's also the Mauna Lower Observatory, which shows an increase in carbon in the atmosphere on 300 parts per million in 1960 to 450 parts per million in 2019. And then there's the National Climate Change Data Centre, there's NASA, there's the Japanese Meteorological Agency, which show temperature anomalies have increased from minus 0.5 in 1880 to 0.75 in 2019. 
and the melting rate of ice in Greenland and Antarctica is 10 times faster than the rate of ice age recovery. People think that Antarctica is a moist place because it's covered in snow, covered in ice. What they don't realise is that Antarctica is the driest continent on the planet. And we might say, well, how did it get all its ice? And the answer is through tens of millions of years. That's how. It would be like if you had a bank account and all you got was $1 per year. In a million years, you'd be a millionaire. And that's essentially what has happened with Antarctica. It's very, very, very slowly gained its ice. And the ice of Greenland and Antarctica is important because the white colour of that ice bounces off the heat of the sun and it cools down our planet. And if the white colour goes then our planet will absorb a lot more heat and it will take millions and millions of years to recover the ice that's lost. And so temperature has risen by almost one degree Celsius since the late 19th century, but most of that warming has occurred over the past 35 years. And from 1993 to 2016, Greenland was losing on average 286 billion tonnes of ice per year. And Antarctica was losing 127 billion tonnes per year. And it's tripled in the last decade. The Arctic Ocean's ice is also rapidly decreasing. And it's also leading to an increase in ocean acidification, which has increased due to carbon emissions. The oceans are absorbing about 2 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide each year. And climate sceptics, climate deniers, will then say to us, ah, but isn't it true that in the 1970s, 70s people were predicting uh, global freezing. Well, in the 1970s they didn't have as good technology and science as they do today. So trying to argue with what scientists were predicting in the 1970s is hardly relevant and is hardly effective as a weapon to bash modern science. But what if it is natural? What if humans are not the cause of it? The, our planet is just naturally getting warmer. Well, the answer is we're still in trouble. We've still got a problem. As I said, there's more people that die from heat-related illnesses than any other natural disasters. And even if it is natural, we can stop it by planting more trees to absorb the carbon and cool our planet. 
And we have to ask ourselves, what is the implications for such damage to our planet? And the answer is, there's the Earth is going to become so hot that there will be mass migrations from the Middle East and parts of Africa, south and north. They're going to immigrate north and south. If you look at a map of the Earth, a flat map, it doesn't occur as a big problem until you look at a globe. And it's better to look at a globe because a globe will show you that the land, the land on the in the centre of our planet is much, much larger than the land that's found elsewhere. When these mass migrations occur of animals and humans, it has a lot of serious implications. There are species of animals that will be outcompeted and will go extinct. And in Revelation chapter 11, verse 18, God says that he will destroy those who destroy the earth. A Christian Debunks Creationism by Paul Martin, read by the author, copyright 2019. Paul Martin's Fine Films and Audio Books. Chapter 10, Flat Earthers. One of the most bizarre phenomenons of the last few years has been the sudden, unexpected and rapid growth of the Flat Earth Movement. I think personally they're just stupid attention seekers. I even joined one of their groups out of sheer curiosity and they were into crazy conspiracy theories. But it comes from a literal interpretation of the scriptures. And while young earth creationists, most of them have disavowed and rejected the flat earth movement, like the flat earth movement, both groups are obsessed with being faithful to a literal interpretation of scripture. And Joshua chapter 10 verse 13 says, The sun stood still, the sun stayed in the midst of the sky. And Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 5 says, The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hurries to its place where it rises. And so the scripture talks figuratively about the earth, poetically. It's not a science book. But if you read it as a science book, you're going to run into problems. And Martin Luther, in his table talk, June the 4th, 1539, said, People gave ear to an upstart astrologer who strove to show that the earth revolves, not the heavens or the firmament, the sun and the moon. The fool wishes to reverse the entire science of astronomy. But sacred scripture tells us that Joshua commanded the sun to stand still and not the earth. 
Another text of scripture is Daniel chapter 4, verses 11 to 20, and it's an apocalyptic vision. But it tells about a tree that became so big and tall that it could be seen all over the earth. And I explained to a creationist, this is talking about a flat earth because that was how ancient people understood the world. And he tried to argue, no, no, it's referring to a round earth. And he said it must have been a tree that covered the top half of the earth. And I said, well, that still wouldn't be seen from Antarctica. And he said, well, maybe it had branches that were hanging down so low that they could be seen in Antarctica. And I laughed and said, well, then it wouldn't be a tree that would be seen all over the earth. It would be a tree that was covering most of the earth. And I said, the context is talking about a tree that could be seen from a far off distance. And most of the world had this geocentric view. I've quoted Martin Luther, but John Calvin did as well. And John Calvin wrote in his sermon on 1 Corinthians 10, 19-24, and this is quoted from Calvini Opera Selecta Corpus Reformatorium, volume 49, 677. John Calvin said, We will see some who are so deranged, not only in religion, but who in all things reveal their monstrous nature, that they will say that the sun does not move, and that it is the earth which shifts and turns. When we see such minds, we must indeed confess that the devil possess them, and that God sets them before us as mirrors in order to keep us in his fear. And that's a pretty crazy, fanatical thing said by John Calvin. But it was not just the Protestants who were guilty of that. We in the Catholic Church were also guilty of believing that geocentric view. Now, it was the generally accepted view in those days, but it led to conflict with Galileo. There's actually a lot of myths about Galileo. I've heard people say that Galileo was executed or that he was put in a dungeon. Neither of them are even remotely true. Galileo was actually a very caustic and conflictive person who ran into a lot of clashes with other scientists. He wasn't very good at winning friends and influencing people. And many he's believed to have invented the first telescope. That's also a myth. It was made in the Netherlands. And he asserted a lot of things that have been proven to be incorrect. So he actually wasn't right about a lot of things. He rejected Kepler's notion that the moon was the cause of tides in the ocean. We know from science today that Kepler was right in that. But what he did do was he pointed out the evidence for the heliocentric view rather than the geocentric view. 
And Galileo said the Bible tells us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. And Galileo was also unable to produce evidence at the time. He wasn't put on trial for his belief, but he was put on trial for the belief that he did not have evidence to back it up. And he was put under house arrest, and the house that he lived in was a mansion. And the Pope even visited him on friendly terms and gave him a blessing on his deathbed in 1642. Now, the condemnation of Galileo did not lead, as a heretic did not lead to his death or his execution. So it's been blown grossly out of proportion. But by 1741, the Catholic Church affirmed the heliocentric view. And it was actually Jesuit scientists who supported this view, the Copernican system. There was Father Francesco Grimaldi, who lived in the 1600s, and Adam Kochansky from 16, Father Adam Chikansky from 1631 to 1700, and they were not harassed by the church. So they may have overreacted to Galileo, but nevertheless, I'm not here to defend them being wrong, but I don't think it should be exaggerated either, as it often is today. But it should be a lesson from the errors of Calvin, Luther, and the church that condemned Galileo, that as Christians we can often misread the Bible, and we can have a mistaken notion of what it's meaning when it was not meant to be written as a science book. Well, my friends, now we have reached the conclusion of our book, A Christian Debunks Creationism. We've looked at the history of evolution. We've looked at whether or not the Bible teaches creationism. We've looked at the age of the universe and then the evidence for evolution. We've examined the question of intelligent design and then whether or not Noah's flood was global, and what does the Bible teach and what does science teach. We've looked at the charlatan and unethical behaviour of many creationists, and then we've examined other secondary issues that come up in relation to creationism. Is there life in outer space? Is climate change a reality? And what about the flat earth movement? The most important message of the scripture is that God is the one who began it in the very beginning. And I'll close by reading Psalm chapter 8. Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who has set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of babes and infants you have established strength because of your adversaries, that you might silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man 
that you think of him, the son of man that you care for him. For you have made him a little lower than God and crowned him with glory and honour. You make him a ruler over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yes, and the animals of the field, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes through the paths of the seas. Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth.